Hey, what's up? This is Makai Brooks. I play Guardian and Supergirl, and welcome to Geek Pride. a very special guest but we'll get to him last um as always we have uh peter ray allison good evening everyone uh and we have mark canty hello everyone and our special guest tonight and it's a deep honor sir uh gav thort Hello. Gav Thorpe. Sorry, my dog's just decided at that moment in time that he wanted to kick off. So I, <laughs> I, I am your dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, there, there's an extra neighbor's dog, and whenever he hears it, he goes fucking mental, and he's going mental. <laughs> just literally when I just about the interview, I mean, introduce you, so it's like, that's the time that I'm going to kick off. Oh. Anyway, so uh, Gav, thank you very much uh, for for joining us it's it's very exciting um uh massive 40k nerds here so <laughs> yeah you're gonna get a lot of questions i've got i've got a ream of them from other people as well so <laughs> um okay so uh first off for everybody who's lived under a rock or probably isn't a uh isn't a warhammer geek uh can you tell tell people who who are you what are you doing who am i well currently i am gav thorpe uh mostly known as a writer for Black Library, Games Workshops, uh, publishing in print for novels of Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000. Um, and prior to that, I was a games developer in the Games Workshop studio working on the games that inspired those novels. Uh, and I was there for 14 years. So uh, from basically 1993 to the present day, however many years that is, um, some years, uh, I've been involved with the Wyoming and Wyoming 40,000 universities uh, to, to some greater or, or lesser extent. Um, so, and particularly if you got into Warhammer Wyoming 40,000 um, during the 90s, um, you would have seen my face a lot in White Dwarf, basically. <laughs> um, and there were whole issues where my face was nearly on every article. Um, so, yeah, that's that's you, my, you did my, third, my, my pride. Third and fourth editions? Of 40k, uh, yeah. So, uh, as a, so, when I joined Games Workshop was was just after second edition came out. Like I say 1993. Um, uh, in the November, it came out in the September. I joined in the November, uh, and one of the first projects I worked on was the Dark Millennium supplement for that. Right. Um, and when I say worked on, what I mean is I was responsible for. Um, Gluing the uh, mock-ups of the war gear cards onto playing cards. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I had nothing to do with the rules at that stage. Was that the uh, equivalent of getting getting coffee for them then? Was that the games yeah, sort of equivalent? Yeah, yeah, that was pretty much. Well, that was kind of <laughs> funny enough. I, I when I applied for Games Workshop, there's a much longer version. But I won't go into it now. But essentially, I ended up writing a letter to Games Workshop asking for a job, uh, and and it said if you need, and I basically said if you need anyone to empty the bins at the studio, I'm up for it. Because <laughs> um, I just, you know, and, and that was it really. And I was lucky enough through timing and various other things that they were looking for assistant games developers, and that's how I started. Um, so yeah, um, uh, not quite fetching the coffee, but yeah, it was. Uh, uh, Oddly enough, the dog's body kind of job of games development isn't that terrible because it's like playing games and, and you know, checking stuff and, yeah. But we, we started the Citadel Journal um, 
which was a, a kind of an exercise in writing and publishing all rolled into one, just to, as a sort of a, a, a non-mainstream, I suppose, like sub-white dwarf place they could put us where we could just make stuff up and get it all wrong and learn out basic layout and publishing and all that kind of stuff. So it was really useful, actually. I think it's the skills that I learned in those first couple of years as an assistant games developer um, and then on White Dwarf as a staff writer and a photographer and doing layout and desktop publishing and going to printers and looking at magazines passed on press and all this kind of stuff, which a lot of games designers don't get a chance to do. Mm. Um, and you see a lot of it these days. I back a lot of Kickstarters, but you can see there's a there's, there's different skills that go into that. And um, and I've been fortunate enough to, to a know a lot of people from my time at Games Workshop who do that stuff and pick, rub stuff off, but actually have had to do some of it. So while I wouldn't say I'm a graphic designer by any stretch of the imagination, and I wouldn't expect people to pay me money to do it, I know enough of the basics that I can get into trouble quite quickly <laughs> um, <laughs> until somebody who does know what they're doing and, and stuff like that. So it's it's a very it was a very rounded beginning that a lot of people don't necessarily get to have in this industry. Um, and then, yeah, and then 1997, so a few years later, Games Workshop decided to set up an imprint um, called the Black Library, which uh, started off with a bi-monthly magazine of short stories and short comic strips and little kind of background pieces. Um, and I had my first short story published in issue two of that. Um, and that, again, that was just a nice fortuitous... I happened to be two desks down from Andy Jones, who started up the imprint, you know, and he asked if I wanted to, you know, I was, I was doing background stuff for the game. So he asked if I wanted to try writing a short story and uh, I did. What was and the short it, story? It was called Birth of a Legend and it was basically about Sigmar um, getting the hammer of Sigmar. So just a little little topic on the edge of the background that nobody knew about. Um, yeah, no, it was... Uh, yeah, so that was it, and it was a lot of fun. And yeah, so from and then that was so yeah, nineteen ninety seven. I was there for fourteen years, and then so in two thousand and seven, was it, it was sort of like early two thousand and eight? Just as the financial world was crashing around us, and I just got a mortgage at the top of the market, uh, I left Games Workshop to go freelance. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's been 50 50 they wanted me to go and 50 50 i wanted to leave so <laughs> jump before um, you were pushed well no, yeah, of, yeah well they, they they helped me jump basically um and i've still got the same mortgage today um so yeah so i, I decided then uh so the, the black library carried on but I, i've done freelance stuff for video games and other games design stuff uh, i have a a trilogy of novels published through Angry Robot called The Crown of the Blood, sort of an original fantasy trilogy and stuff. So, yeah, I've got to do a few different things over the years, which is quite fun. Yeah, and in uh, 2017, you won the David Gemmell Award for Epic Fantasy. I did, yes, for my, my Age of Sigma novel, War Beasts. Yeah. Uh, the, yes. So that was that was surprising and very nice. Um, I wasn't really expecting that at all. There's been a couple of... Um, Warhammer writers who've uh, been shortlisted recently. I mean, Graham McNeil famously uh, also won it for a Warhammer novel, um, for a Sigma novel, funnily enough. Um, so, yeah, I, I, was, I was pleased with that, and especially considering some of the people I was up against, like Mark Lawrence and things, were very large fan bases and stuff. But, uh, yeah, so it was it was nice. I, I, I kind of took it as a bit of a lifetime achievement. Uh, you know, I've got ongoing series and ideas and things, so you're pitching ideas to them, and they're like, oh, actually, cool, yeah, well, that sounds like a great idea. We'll slot that into the schedule here. And so th there's a, an ongoing uh, dialogue with the editors, really, and they have an ongoing, obviously, um, kind of um, 
acquisitions meetings with our sales teams and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's it's a bit different from a normal publisher, I suppose, because everything's commission. It's all it's, there's no kind of slush pile. I, I don't have to write an entire novel and then hope they pick it up, um, which is what you generally would do. Um, again, I was kind of lucky with Angry Robot in that it was set up by Mark Gascoigne, who used to run Black Library and was looking for <laughs> authors for their initial range. Um, and so it was basically phoning up all these old Black Library contacts and things and saying, do you want to write a novel? Um, and I still had a pitch and so it wasn't a shoe-in. I just still had to come up with an idea that they liked and provide a sample and stuff. But unfortunately, I didn't have to write the entire novel before they commissioned it. Um, so, uh, and then through things, and then there's slightly more kind of integrate things like the Horus Heresy series, which is a big multi-author series. So we, and, and now we're into the Siege of Terror. So we had very regular meetings with the editorial team and the other authors, um, and and also other elements of the company like Forge World, who have been writing, developing the background and creating models and stuff like that. So, um, and then the, the editorial team act as that connection through to the rest of the games workshop and the design studio. So if I'm, if, <laughs> so, for example, the novel uh, just recently out was Indomitus, which is tied to the new Indomitus box set. Um, so that was one that they came to me and said, we're doing a new box set. Would you like to do the tie-in novel for that? It's like, yes, that sounds great. Uh, and they go, well, here's what's in it, and here's the background that's been written for it so far. Unfortunately, that was one that didn't have a very defined story. It was more like, it was more of an expansion of the background and quite a big picture stuff about this thing called the Pariah Nexus and all this kind of stuff. So I had a, they said they wanted a very character-driven story for that one rather than a big kind of space opera type thing. So um, so that, that's how that one came about. Whereas um, uh, something like, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of the Eldar novels, the Phoenix Laws novels and things like that, are stuff that I'm a big fan of. And I've come to them and said, oh, you know, it's like, oh, I think it'd be great to do a regular series based around these characters and this is how I want to do it and, and stuff like that. So there's a, a mix of stuff. But if there's stuff needed from the studio, then it kind of comes through them. So, so, so yeah, it's, it's, um, uh, it's, it's interesting because I think they trust me or... Uh, I tend to get trusted with stuff because of my background as a games developer. And I used to be, uh, I used to be Warhammer Lawmaster, so I used to run the Warhammer team. But also, I had spent a period when well, we had a, a what was called a key design team, and I was actually lead background designer for that. So I was in charge of the background development for both the, both Warhammer and Warhammer Forty Thousand. So, um, so when I say you know, if I put something, unless I've got it absolutely wrong or something's tweaked in the latest codex or something, you know, it's usually like, uh, I don't tend to get much feedback that says, are you sure it works this way? Because <laughs> I kind of just assume I know it. And that's the advantage. It's, it's also a bit of a trap, though, because stuff does change. And, and certainly, you know, um, with stuff like the Primaris and Age of Sigma, which I've had no connection to, I've had no involvement in that development any time over the years sort of thing. So that I've, I, I am constantly having to look stuff up and research it and make sure that what I've got is the version that's being kind of, uh, you know, is out there that everyone else is sharing, as opposed to some nugget in the back of my head from a conversation with Rick Priestley 20 years ago. Do I go, ah, well, I know these guys because they're like this. Um, it doesn't necessarily, I, you know, I don't get to pull that card out quite so often now because it's all moved on so far. Um, yeah, which because, it's it's yeah, hard work. <laughs> yeah, because, like, no, the, the system like, keeps evolving they can, and they keep introducing new elements to it. I mean, one thing I find interesting about Black Library is that seems like, it seems like this massive share world but with a very directed tone to it you this i mean like how do you pitch a story or rather how do they approach your story how much do you know in advance like when you're plotting characters because obviously the horace heresy 
has a very definite timeline and you're fitting a book in a very specific spot on that timeline, how do you make sure everything ties up with each other without going insane? Well, that's the bit you do, you do just go insane. <laughs> but, uh, the, the Siege of Terror stuff, so they're basically the, so the, the, like the last eight books, the culmination of the series. So the, the Horus Heresy has gone through various phases of it, and none of them were necessarily particularly planned until towards the end. So it was a trilogy of, of kind of books, and I wasn't actually involved right at the start. I was, um, uh, you know, I was still working at the studio then and, and had other projects and things. So, um, uh, so I came on board a little bit after that period and, and it was phenomenally successful when it started. So they realized they've got a bit of a go here. Okay. Um, and, and sort of like the idea expanded out from whatever its initial plans were to become this kind of more ongoing narrative setting type thing. And, and sort of, and the, and the stories expanded from that initial trilogy out into all of the stuff to explore about the heresy and all the different legions and primarchs and other things. Um, and then sort of, as we sort of hit about the halfway mark, um, just in terms of sheer number of books, it was it was uh, it was becoming clear that we it needed a bit more direction. There was loads of all, all of the obvious sort of um, existing background events had been ticked off and covered, and some new stuff had been introduced, and some you know there been some revelations and this and the other. But all the pretty much all the big hits had kind of been been played, as it were. Um, and and in the extant background, it kind of then goes ah la la la, and then there's loads of fighting, and then they go to terror, um, and and that's what we call the age of darkness. Actually, this nobody knows what happened for these like six years or so of, of war, you know, engulfed the galaxy. But we didn't want to just kind of it just to be all over the place. So it started, you know, we had things like the unremembered empire and the Thramash Crusade and various other things that happened. But then we started. From the community and also from ourselves, we started wanting. It's like we well, we need to start this arrowing back into that that conflict at Terror, but that took a long time because we created this big beast and everyone wants to hear about their favourite Primarch and their favourite Legion and this little episode that was here or whatever. So, uh, kind of getting that back on track and then focusing it down, having created this massive, expansive universe within a universe, basically, um, and then into the Siege of Terror, which was these very specific books on a very specific timeline so the first two meetings were just sitting down with calendars and all the extant material and go this has to happen by here and this is how long we've got to do this and this is what happens here and then and, and try to work out how many books that's going to need and what the beats are going to be and all that kind of stuff and it was all um and and so whereas the the wider the main heresy series had kind of just evolved and allowed to grow and then was kind of whipped into shape towards the end to focus it back into the seed of terror every book has been very planned and layered of who has to be in it and what the beats are going to be so we've each had been able to tell our story that we've seen it but we've had a we've had a goal i suppose that we're trying to hit so with for example with the last wall you know yeah. I, I, it was all about the lionsgate spaceport and so and the stories i could tell around that um but yeah just the sheer number of of kind of threads going in and check in and, and the length of the books and just, you know, I could have written another 50,000 words of that and there'd still be people saying, oh yeah, but you didn't cover this or we didn't do that very, you know, um, uh, I wanted to see more of this thing. Um, and, and there's a, each of the authors, so John French did the first one uh, and he was the guinea pig and he was brilliant and he did all this maps of the solar defences and set up stuff brilliantly running and things like that. And Guy Haley did the second book. But as each of us complete start a book, you get into it and you realise the scope of what you've got to try and do and the space you've got to try and do it in and stuff. And then there's this real thousand-eyed 
thousand yard stare at the meetings and everyone else not written one of their books yet they're like oh yeah yeah and then uh, each of us in turn are just like start to get that haha yeah no this is crazy <laughs> and of course we're still coming up with ideas you know of like oh yeah but cool and we're really getting into like the metaphysics of the emperor versus horus and, and stuff we want to expand and use as an excuse and perpetual and all this kind of stuff so it's like it's not only getting this massive funnel of the main series and and we can't do every single story and every and nothing gets tied up in a bow necessarily and stuff but you know people want to see those characters at that end and again there's still lots of big hits from from the existing material that people want to see so you've got to do all that, plus give them something new and maybe try and put a new spin on something so people think about stuff in a slightly different way or see it from the point of view of a different character and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, and then so at the end of it, it's relief as much mm-hmm. as anything that you've got this thing done and out and it's, you know, so yeah, crazy. You, the one thing, the Horace Heresy books, which I, I absolutely adore, I think they're just amazing. Um but the one thing that I love about the Horus Heresy is how they're portraying the Emperor and how he seems to be this fallible human. You know, he's just super, super, he's super like, he's, he's, he's godlike, but he's not a god. And I like that they're starting to throw in a lot of stuff. Like he has a name and he has flaws and he has sort of the way he treats, uh, the way he treats his, his tools effectively the primarchs and things and i love that i think that is an amazing amazing sort of uh direction to go in yeah i mean it's one of those things that's kind of various things to trade like from 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 sort of like horse rising and through quite a lot of the series and pretty much until deliverance lost actually which was my first novel you know you, most of the primarchs were always seen from outside you were never inside their heads there were all these kind of numinous beings these demigods that, that were changing the galaxy and stuff but it was always from the space marines and then as we got into the series we started to see inside the heads and get that point of view a little bit more but always through it's always been you will never see inside the emperor's head not you because because everything's because the mystery of it and the discussion of it and the uh and like i said that that kind of because he is all things to all people both in the real world and in, within the universe you know the, the the custodians see him as a certain way and the primarchs see him in another way in the space marines and normal people and stuff and because he has this projection he has this influence on the world and is uh and Nobody quite knows what he is, except maybe a handful of individuals, some of whom we've got to meet now in the Seed of Terror and and through the Perpetuals and stuff. Um, and that's always going to be true. And so, and that's one of the fun things about the heresy is like we have this fact, fact one, you know, this happened here and this, but actually the story underneath it and what, how that actually affected people and why it happened and what the fallout was that can change and, and add different context to it. And so the Emperor... Is always going to be this this slightly unknowable, uh, you know, it, uh, 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 focus of discussion, I suppose, which is cool. I mean, I think just in the heresy, but also 40k in general, the one of the things that spurs the most discussion, the most involvement, is the, are the gaps, are the mysteries, the things that aren't. You know, 40k has never tried to have a complete timeline of everything and every single detail one to allow players to kind of create their own armies and their own stories and things but also because uh, for, for me that that also hands out the storytelling and, and the development to to everybody you know it's like your your view of the mystery around the two missing legions is just as valid as everybody else's there is no real answer you know that's a good example you know and i think that's important there's not like a haha with a we're, we, there's this big tome of knowledge but we're not going to let you know because just we're you know we're gets like that it's like no no they're just genuine mysteries that are left there and anyone's interpretation on the facts 
may or may not be just like real historical interpretation depending on the text you've got available and your knowledge of the times may be right or may be wrong and and it could be theory rather than fact and i think that's cool that's, you don't get a lot of that in a lot of ips um because they tend to be very defined do you feel do, with that in mind do you feel that the two lost legions will never really have any lore behind them literally they are just a plot device for people to create things themselves uh, yeah, there's pretty much. I mean, I'd be very surprised. I mean, that said, you know, if you'd asked me five years, five years ago, you know, I, people were saying, "Oh, would the Primarchs ever return?" It's like, no, because you know, uh, at the time, you know, when Alan Merritt was IP manager, he said the Primarchs would never return. Of course, we've got Rebooter Gilliman has come back. So, you know, I would never say never, but it's there's just no there's no payoff. <clears throat> For answering that question, that's worth that's worth getting rid of all of the other potential that's behind it, and and so you know, because uh, everybody's theory is correct at the moment. As soon as you answer it, either nobody's right, and but you know, it's like, well, how do you come up with something that nobody's guessed? And and you you're trying to kind of pull the rug from under people almost by going, ha, huh, you didn't guess what it was up to. Actually, they were they were all just like space rats, ha, huh? or something <laughs> stupid. Um, you heard it here first. Um, uh, space skater. Or, or some people, yes. Well, that's, 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 that's something entirely different. Um, or or some people are proven right and they go, ha-ha, and everyone else is proven wrong. And they're like, oh, wow, okay, well, you know, my theory is no longer valid. Yeah. So you I open think, the box, someone's going to be upset. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and, and Warhammer 40k also, um, nerds aren't known for their um, diplomatic views on things. I mean, the Lost Legions are obviously an excellent narrative tool for when you're creating an army. I mean, I've created dozens of armies which were one of the fabled Lost Legions, and it just, that's, and from my perspective, was like my little input in that kind of 40k lore. Yeah. And like, no, it's not canon. It's not legitimate, but it's just head canon. But I think, but I think that's the thing, and that's very much that's that's absolutely at the core. And and various folks and writers and people involved there have tried to kind of get this idea across. It's like this use of the word canon. They go, there is no canon. Right? There's there's certain established facts at any given time, depending on what's. And the closest there is to canon is what was in the latest codex. Yeah. Um, and then you kind of there's a slightly secondary secondary layer which is like what's in the four drug books and the black library books and things like that and essentially what's what was before that hasn't been directly contradicted since yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. because sometimes just because something's not been mentioned for 20 years doesn't mean it's actually been taken out of the game or the universe it's just it's been irrelevant to the battle game as it's been developed and stuff like that because that's one of the other things is it's as it's gone on you know rogue trader when it came out was it was essentially started off as an RPG, but then became a miniatures game, essentially, and lots of the element in the background reflected that, you know, and the style of it. And as it's moved more and more and more towards a battle game and a big battle game and stuff like that, obviously the, the background's honed in towards that, which doesn't mean all the stuff, yay. Now, is that Mine's an original, or is that one? <laughs> I can show you mine, but the pages are falling out there. Hang on. Oh, yeah, no, they're all there. My juice dealers have gone missing. Yeah. yeah, well, I keep. I was thinking about it. Should I get the reprint? And it's like, well, I don't know. My, the old one might feel bad. Um, <laughs> it's being replaced by a younger model. Um, the, there's something about this. I, I now have to open it with kind of reverence. <laughs> <laughs> going, oh. um, you really want to yes. read that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. For the last time before it goes poof. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there's, there's a. There was a bit of old canon, or, or obviously the old lore um, about the the Warhammer world. Um, 
the the fantasy uh, battle world that it used to be a world within the 40k universe but covered in warp storms kind of i don't think that's ever really been i think was it in a white dwarf or something i can't remember exactly there may what be, yeah there may have been something like that. i mean there was there was there's little hints that there was there, there's a couple of joke hints i mean i did some myself when we did the uh we did a, uh, a summer campaign for warhammer called dark shadows which was set on the misty isle of albion and at the end of it three <laughs> armies got um uh, that was loads of puns in, in that campaign. <laughs> Not enough puns in 40k in Warhammer these days. Um, and, and and there were three devices, three magic items that you basically got from that. And, and the, the, it was because it's all tied into the old ones, which is kind of part of the 40k mythos. But actually, um, uh, sorry, the three items were basically a power fist, a power sword, and I can't remember what the other thing was. Um, but um, but and, and back in the day, like where, where the old realm, of, original realm of chaos books and stuff, you could have like a chaos mutation turn up, and your guy has a las cannon. Um, so there was. <laughs> because, so, uh, but the idea was, I think, it was that these were different realities, but they're linked through the realm of chaos. The realm of chaos being this dimension that exists outside of time and space, but actually, it did. and it kind of still slightly to this day applies in that you know you kind of still get the same special demonic characters in the in the one yeah. because. It's, because also there's just the really real world thing of it's a bit like the horror series itself. Like you don't want to have two miniatures ranges, um, so one range of demons serves forty k and we well, including special characters and stuff like yay. That's just one one load of codes rather than doubling up. Um, and but there's always been like real world difficulties in dealing with like the demons and stuff. Uh, um, <clears throat> but uh, but yeah, so that. But I've always kind of taken they're more kind of riffs on the same themes. Mm. You know, Warhammer was a fan of <laughs> take. Uh, so again, you know, there was the old ones, and this collapsed civilization, and that 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 was like over a period of about eight thousand years in the life of the Warhammer world, whereas that story is told over sixty million years in the in the forty k universe. And actually, there isn't a point in the history of forty k where there was a world that was the Warhammer world, which of course isn't, and especially now with Age of Sigma having blown it up and turned it into all these different mortal realms and spheres of existence <laughs> and stuff. Anyway, but again, that's just a, but that's still another riff on that central idea because there still was the age of myth and age of chaos and now the, the kind of the present age of sigma so it's it's different but it's still the kind of the same it's a, a different take on those same yeah. conceptual pillars i suppose dark yeah, future was another world. one you know yeah. how, how do you okay well sorry had the whole idea of the um the original human empire and all the other ones and then you had the dark period where everything was mixed up and then yeah. the empire and the Horus Heresy, where they were dragging themselves back out of darkness. Yes, yeah. I mean, there's, uh, yeah, the dark age of technology and the idea, you know, again, things that were hinted at and never been explained, like, um, and some of the stuff that I've contributed and stuff, stuff that was before about, you know, did the did the machines rise up? You know, essentially because 40k and Warhammer, the original sort of Warhammer basically played on every single archetype there is to play on. So if you'd read about it in sci-fi, or death worlds or machine revolutions or, you know, uh, Foundation or Asimov or anything else up until about probably, given Rick's age, probably anything up to about 1978. Um, that he probably didn't read in the last 10 years before he actually wrote it. But, you know, June, obviously, you know, influence. So all of that stuff was thrown in there. And Doctor Who, lots of, again, a very British creation. I think that's the other things about them. They're not, there was lots of very glitzy kind of, high fantasy and high sci-fi space opera and star trekky kind of stuff but actually the stuff that's in 40k is very british and stuff that's in warhammer as well and i think that's that was one of its appeals at the time i think and, and still is that 
that that lack of shininess and it's it's not going to be all right we're all going to die uh very 80s very two minutes to midnight very nihilistic isn't it it's very nihilistic in tone (laughs) yeah it is i mean although i mean and this is where you you sort of deal with it the background in a slightly different way so like as a developer and writer of codex and stuff and that's that's very much you take is like uh this is all kind of spitting into the wind shaking your fist of death but they're all going to die but but actually when i'm writing novels even like when you're writing about very dubious characters and stuff like that um or or even for the on the the good guys as it were you know for any given value of good there are (laughs) despite the the overwhelming kind of crushing nature of the grim darkness of the 41st millennium or whatever it is, <coughs> there is still space for individual acts of heroism. And that's where it counts almost. It's, heroism isn't being able to save the day. Heroism is saving the, the person next to you or the hive or the planet. It doesn't matter if it's going to get destroyed again tomorrow. That, it's, it's fighting despite that lack of ultimate victory rather than with a hope for it, I think. Yeah, Facing indeed. death and spitting it in the eye. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the um, FIK universe is kind of populated by shades of grey. And tell about the Tau came Is it Tau or Tau? Tau. Tau. Until the Tau came along. And they were kind of very much about the greater good. And I found they were kind of a very fundamental good, if naive race with no psychos. And didn't Super have annoying have any... to play against. <laughs> I love Super it. Super annoying it's... to play against. I love yeah. it because it's mechs and... Um... No, it was yeah. it. it, it... Well, again, it's like it's one of those. It was quite a generational thing, really. Yeah. Um, generational, not quite. So it's personal taste as well. Um, in that, when it came to uh, introducing a new race, there was a very obvious archetype, sci-fi archetype, which was the the manga-esque uh, anime robot. You know, battle tech. Uh, well, not battle. You know, sort of Robotech and and kind of Gundam esque uh, suits. And Jez Goodwin, very you know, and myself um, were very keen on big fighty robots and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, and it's weird because it's one of those that you know people like John Blanche and Rick didn't really understand because it wasn't their thing. It wasn't European and history and all that kind of stuff. But they understood. And, and actually, we had this very new background as well. Again, so it wasn't part of the, you know, it was very kind of new world versus old world, not part of this old crumbling empire, this new mm. upstart race, you know, uh, yes, naive, ridiculously naive, but but again, <coughs> to shine a light then on everything else by mm. comparison, it's like technology is not cursed or psychic or, you know, or surrounded by superstition or literally infested with demons or anything, you know, all this kind of stuff, which suddenly made everything else more stark, actually, by their, their, their existence. And and the fact that, um, and we also use them just to showcase, you know, because they were actually this, I, I dislike the fact they're called the Tower Empire because they're not an empire. They're like, a, you know, they're more of a confederation. That's the whole point. Um, uh, but Tower Confederation is a very long title. <laughs> um, uh, we used it just, you know, just to like. There are lots of other uh, races in the galaxy as well that we don't necessarily talk about. They're not worth a whole army list, and they're not big galactic players and stuff. And the Tau, you know, are moderately powerful in this very small sector of space. You know, they're, they're big fish in a very small pond uh, where they are, kind of stuff. Um, and so there's kind of a bit of that. And there's a, so it felt there was a whole bunch of ideas around at the time. And they all ended up in the Tau. Or the Necrons, one way or the other. One of the ideas was the equivalent of the like the space dogs of war, uh, this allied force. So the idea the town formed the centre of it, but they'd have all of these different auxiliary troops, like the Crude, and then later on Vespid and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, it was very different. Rather than the 
you know, kill the Xenos, kill the mutant, just absolute kind of dogmatic, uh, superstitious medievalism of nearly of the Imperium, but you know, lots of uh, the other stuff that surrounds the Imperium. This was a the aliens were the ones who were almost closest to us in terms of modern sensibility and morals. But of course, that's not quite true. And it's certainly been sort of like muddy, mm-hmm. well, not muddy, but darkened and grimmed a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Depending yeah. on the writer that's dealing with them. Yeah, yeah. I find it quite interesting because, like, until the Tau came along, the the Imperium was seen as, like, the nominal good guys of the 40k. And then you see the Tau, and, like, when you cast that and compare them to the Imperium then, suddenly the Imperium doesn't seem that as, as good as it once did. Yeah, I mean, it's... The, 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 without getting, you know, because this is a geeky podcast, not like a people doing their philosophy theses and stuff like that, <laughs> which I'm clearly under... Uh, you know, undertaught to kind of talk about in any detail and stuff like that. But essentially, yeah, once you start getting into good evil and all that kind of stuff and, and comparative morality and things like that, essentially, but the thing is, Imperium is us as humans. And whatever else happens and however you portray stuff, unless you're willing to for our own species to die out, one way or another, you, we uh, as humans root for the humans, you know, yeah. in whatever fiction it is, you know. Um, and the fact that the humans, for their part, are terrible or the system, the Imperium yeah. itself is this terrible, uncaring, fascistic, mm. uh, mega church, all the things that are worst about humanity, really, um, doesn't necessarily, doesn't just still, you know, that's the kind of dichotomy of it, but they're still us. Yeah. They're still humans. We wouldn't necessarily, we couldn't, we, we can't relate to humans in the 41st in any kind of meaningful way, but we have to because we write fiction about them, the same as the space marines and stuff. You know, we humanize things that are in the same way that the world, you know, trying to always try to get across to people, go, oh, why is it, why is it like that? It doesn't work. You're like, yeah, that's the point. You know, the Imperium doesn't function. It's just collapsing and falling apart. It's, it's trying to, it's a galactic empire that, in the same way that, you know, any kind of empire that was divided by the seas or whatever, you know, the problems of long, large-scale communication, transport, and all that kind of stuff means that actually it's just a million worlds that all kind of just nominally are held together by this concept called the Imperium. And then now and again, they might actually bump into each other and, and uh, their armies, you know, get sent somewhere else. But, but actually, um, uh, that that also that idea that their worldview is anyway rational, in the same way that the, the, having a conversation from somebody from the 14th century that they would have any concept of our modern <laughs> rationality. Yeah. So no, now we have to give them some of that because in the same way you do for aliens and stuff when you're writing a protagonist in a novel or something like so that people aren't just going, huh? And in the same way that they get humanised in historical fiction and things like that, you know. Um, but actually, yeah. Uh, the, 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 your Imperial Guardsman is not, you know, is not an American GI. You know, his mm. thought processes of fighting for the God Emperor are not the same as the guy who's kind of, you know, salutes the the red, white, and blue or whatever. But but that's kind of underneath it. You know, we can't. Mm. Like I say, you can only hint at those kinds of things. I yeah. Think. Um, because otherwise, you just create this completely unapproachable edifice, and everyone would be just like, I don't know what what that's all about. There's a joke, isn't there, of the of the of the mum walking in, getting ready for Christmas and saying to the saying to the poor bo- poor bloke in the blue shirt. So, which ones are the good guys? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And he just sits there and goes. Space Marines hit on three plus. <laughs> 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 That's it. Yeah. That's it. Oh, so, re-rolls. 
Um, <laughs> one thing I was going to ask as well is, given the amount of law in the 40k universe, when you're talking hundreds of books, how do you keep track of it all? I mean, how do you kind of keep all the different threads in line? And, you don't really. I mean, I think, and that's that's potentially one of the issues, but also um, but the sheer vastness of it and, and, yeah. and how it, very little, because because there isn't that canon in a sense, um, you you really only need to work with one or two authors who maybe have written something around there. So, for example, when Guy Haley was doing Valador and a few other books about the Eldar, he, you know, Guy and I are quite good friends anyway, but, you know, he kind of got in contact and, and asked a couple of questions and he had read the Path of the Eldar books that I'd done and, and stuff and just, you know, a couple of questions about that and, and tied it into that. Um, and so, although there's loads and loads of these books, most of them are very much down their own channels. You know, it's like if you write about the Blood Angels, then actually there's only these six books, really. If you write about the Dark Angels, there's only these seven books. If you and 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 even then, most of those are self-contained as well. That's the thing: is everything, everything feels. That's one of the kind of wonderful things about it. Everything feels part of this massive universe. But any given bit is actually fairly isolated. You know, uh, Dan Amritzgorn's Ghosts and things. You know. Is, is famously, you know, it's a few hundred years in the past and it's this thing called the Makarian Crusade and it covers, you know, loads and loads of worlds, which of course is a tiny fragment of the Imperium at large. And so you have this massive campaign and war and all these characters and regiments and stuff like that, all of which is, as you've got, as an author, you've got total plausible deniability to have nothing to do with them, <laughs> which is the biggest strength in a way of 40K is that unless, you, unless you've got a big name character, which has been more of over the last few years of Dante or, you know, uh, Marnie's Calgar or, you know, any number of named individuals. Um, but even then, you know, their lives spanned centuries, some of them millennia, if you get to play around with the Eldar and stuff like I do. So the chance of any two particular storylines clashing, as long as, as long as you couch stuff in a certain way of like, well, this is you know around about the time of the heresy or around about the time of this thing that happened. And you don't say, well, on the 22nd of May, uh, on Trafalgar Square, Minus Calgar met Dante. And, and, and somebody later then says, you know, oh, actually, I think you'll find her in Piccadilly Circus. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, that's because that's the thing you also, and there's a quite a bit of this now within Doctor's Crusader particularly, you vague it up a bit, basically. These are, these are events of the current time and there is a kind of chronology there, but actually, uh, you know, there's time for everything to fit in. In the same way that Batman isn't dead of old age now. Yeah. You know, because it's it's like, well, you just go and tell another Batman story. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You go back and tell it when he was young. Well, we've already got 20 stories when he's a young Batman. Well, it doesn't matter. This is a different one. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's Because like, it's, it's a cool Batman story. It's another riff. It's a, Again, it's almost that same idea of... If you're if if you were writing about a historical event like World War Two, you wouldn't say, oh well, you know, somebody's written about the fall of Berlin. I can't do that because you know because the basics of the characters and the events may be the same or, or stuff, but actually the story you tell could be vastly different. So my story of the Blood Angels at the end of the 41st millennium could be very different from Jim Swallows or Guy Haley's, yeah. and 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 so even if they potentially clash, they're all still valid. In the same way that all those stories about Stalingrad are all still valid because they're not, none of them are the defining truth. They're all stories about, if that makes From sense. point of view. Yeah. <laughs> uh, given like, given like, you know, um, like various authors collaborate on often the same subject or the same uh, particular line, how gentle are you with the, their characters? Well, again, it's not, I mean, other than the heresy, really. Yeah. 
just because for what you said about getting your head around the storyline and also just because things tend to be kind of you know end up being commissioned in trilogies and stuff like that so that you tend to have a bit of a run with a certain faction or storyline anyway so you know i'm uh, i'm I'm not the only person who's written about the Dark Angels, but I'm putting that written the most about Dark Angels. Uh, and I'm not planning to write much more about them any time soon, except Luther coming. He, yes, it's, there you go, Angels of Darkness. That's, well, that's why, you know, one, it, one particular book. Uh, that, <laughs> I mean, that came about because Mark Gascoigne at the time said to me, do you want to write a Space Marines novel? And I said, not really. I don't find them that interesting. Um, and, and so, and, and in, a, in a very Marco way, which was brilliant, and he just said to me, well, why didn't you try and write a novel that's interesting then? <laughs> so and it's like, that was the, that was the, he's like laying the challenge to me, like yeah. not find something in the Space Marines that's interesting, but find something in the Space Marines that I think I thought I could make interesting. So it's like, oh, you're, he was very good at that sort of thing. Um, you know, yes, just yeah. getting into your head a little bit. And, um, and, and so that was it. And so I kind of alighted on the idea of the Dark Angels and the internal conflict. And there, this, it was just as um, Sabretooth Games was starting the Horus Heresy CCG and Alan Merritt was starting to do little snippets of background for that. And I had a conversation with him about this idea of old legions and new legion. And, and, and that was kind of where it came from. And this, I, and also I had very recently or watched Memento and the idea of the kind of two storylines. Oh, yes. I, so I love that. And I've done that a couple of times now. Um, and it's you know it's been it's been used in a couple of other films and stuff. But you know the revelation going backwards one way while the story progresses forward another way was kind of like the basis of the the, the idea of the current events and the interview. The interview delving back towards the original heresy and stuff like that. So, and that was a one-off. You know there was never any intent that I was going to follow that up. But then it made sense because when I was asked to write a Space Marine Battles novel. Uh, which was a series of novels based on very specific events that were already in the background. Mm. And so there was like a double whammy for me of like doing the Dark Angels because um, I'd I'd worked on the studio product, which was um, Storm of Vengeance, which was set in the Piscina campaign, which was the prequel, basically, to what happened in Angels of Darkness. That starts at the end of the Piscina campaign. And so it's like, oh, well, actually, because I know these events and I know these quite, you know, quite well, this is quite, it's quite an exciting balance. Cause, so I wrote, uh, Storm of Vengeance, you know, um, and for uh, sort of tie-in for that series, and then later on, when there was a Dark Angels novel being released for Seventh Edition 40k, that long ago now was it? Uh, and they said, oh, actually, you know, uh, the, there's a new Dark Angels okay that's coming out. Would you like to write the first in a trilogy that'll come out alongside that? it made sense to go back and dust off those storylines and go, well, actually, I never intended to go back. You know, there was no sequel intended for Angels of Darkness, but wouldn't it be cool to see what happened when his message comes back? What's the content? And so that ended up becoming the, the legacy of Caliban. And by that point, I was writing in the Horus Heresy about Dark Angels. So there was like being able to <laughs> seed breadcrumbs on both sides about right. stuff that's connected together. And then suddenly you have this, so, uh, and, and all of it's there and I'm happy to, you know, sort of like, particularly the author and stuff, chat to people about what the plan was. And, and again, there's never, the bit in the middle was never decided about exactly what happened and this, that and the other. But just as both, both heresy and 40K kind of get towards it, it the, the connective tissue kind of grows um, and, and there's more hints and clues and stuff like that. But, you know, certainly in, as a 
like library author, for example, I never get to go, aha, oh, here's I'm just going to decide to reveal the truth about who Cypher is. You know, oh, I was just going to say, is it Zarael? It's not Zarael. <laughs> no, but that's a hint. And that's one of the things that suddenly, you know, people had, their, people had some theories and then I write, I wrote Age of Caliban. And suddenly there's another theory in there because at that time, that's he's the one who's the title. And if we ever get to a position where that's answered, going back to the other things, like, well, I think there's a trick we've lost there. It should ne- there's never, through the legacy of Caliban stuff and the third one, The Unforgiven, uh, you know, again, there's lots of hints and little uh, kind of nods towards certain answers or what they might be. But again, it never says, aha, I've solved this problem. Uh, you know, I've, I've kind of squared the circle and you don't have to worry about it anymore because that's just... But see, Cypher had a big part to play in, um, oh, what, what were the name of the, the, there were the campaign books that hit in before uh, 8th edition oh, kicked in. The Gathered Storm. Yeah, so yeah, he had a yeah. big play, and then he, you know. And then disappeared. And then dis- disappeared, so it's like, it, it was kind of annoying, because I was like, oh, we're going to see who Cypher is, and then. I think that's the problem, and, and you, uh, that you have to be a bit careful with some of this stuff. Um, and it's the same, and you know, I've done I've done similar with bits of background and campaigns and stuff where you, you kind of overpromise, but you can never deliver because of those things of like, aha, yeah, you know, aha, we're gonna uh, we're gonna tease you, and you're gonna find find out about what he's and he's gonna meet this, and the line's gonna be released or whatever it might be, and it's like, well, no, because that's never gonna happen, you know. Uh, um, uh, well, <laughs> as far as no, yeah, well, it, it, to a point, but it's like, also you go well if you enjoy all this discussion about cipher and stuff like that. Why would you not let people who start playing the game in ten years from now enjoy the same discussion? Yeah, it's very true. And very as much as it seems repetitive to us, because that's the other thing that loads of people, loads of fans, don't understand, of course, because particularly when they're rooted in the thing, is they never they, they always imagine that everyone knows exactly what they know. As much, for as long as they've known it, and they've got all the, and you're like, no, there's people start. Do you know today people picked up their first Dark Angels miniatures today, or their first book or novel or 40k or whatever to this very day, and they're learning it for the first time, like we did all those years ago. And it's sad. It's all called and exciting, no matter what. Then you know why? Why rob them of the same journeys that we could enjoy with these games yeah. and backgrounds that you know? There's also the people that played when they were younger and came back. Because I had that when I was sort of in my late teens playing with Archangels and then I rediscovered about 10 years ago. And so there was all that in the between you had to try and fill in. Yes. Where you were learning about what they'd done when you weren't looking. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing was that that was relatively straightforward until quite recently, which was there was, you know, because there were things added and stuff like that. But But anyone who maybe are rejoining the game, you know, maybe finished playing in, say, 2005 and is rejoining now. And suddenly it's like, sorry, they what? The who? The what? The how? The what blew up? You know, um, especially since I did, didn't, we, didn't we just didn't we just do this in the Ayatara campaign? But anyway, um, <laughs> uh, hang on. Oh, so they finally followed through 15 years later. And um, squats are technically back. Oh, yeah. Well, they were never gone. Yeah. They were just like with stage on and changing their names. Do you think they'll ever... Because like I, I, if they brought squats out again, I would throw all my money at them. I, I would give them everything. <laughs> I would sell my house. Yeah, <laughs> just. Yeah. But I just, it and seems mad to me that they would never. I know it's there's the running joke with squats. It's always the running joke with them and stuff. But but now that you've got two miniatures, two forge roll miniatures that are squats, I just think I personally think you're like you're you're missing a trick by not having them come back in some way, shape, or form because people like me old school sort of like rogue trader guys who, who grew up on squats would throw all of our money at it 
all of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when the uh, I've talked about this various times. When when the towel came, so when when the towel came out, the the lead up to the towel was uh, was very specific in that because there was always a plan. There was, there was Rick's famous four-year plan, which was every two years you visit one of the core games. So it was like 40k, and then two years later it was Warhammer, and then two years later it was 40k, and then two years Warhammer. You know, just to refresh the, even if you didn't do much with the rules, refresh the box sets, all this kind of stuff. That was that was the that was kind of pretty much the big plan that started with fourth edition Warhammer. Um, and I did those off years. This was the Christmas release because there was always a specialist game Easter release as well. But there was always. Um, <clears throat> something else, you know, every other year, and then so we had Necromunda, and then that that was really successful. Um, so we had Gorkamorka, which wasn't. Um, uh, but there, there was a certain point where <coughs> there was going to be, there was supposed to be a, like uh, a big box game, but sort of like Rick and and others, they said, well, what if we put the resources that would normally go into a big box game into a new army for forty k? So all of that plastic and all that, which of course, again, at the time, that amount of plastic resource off the bat was kind of, oh, my word, you know, that's quite an investment. Whereas these days, you know, it's like they just throw plastic sprues out the window for fun. You know, I'm so jealous of the, of the modelling and the potential and stuff that they have these days of just being able to make up so much, having fought tooth and nail to get a plastic giant. Um, and now they've released an army of them. Even bigger. And you're like, oh. You don't know you're born. Um, but, um, so, but so uh, there was a whole bunch of stuff, and it didn't necessarily have to be an army, but it, you know it could have been a 40k supplement uh, style of city fight. So one of the things was like uh, doing a boarding actions game, uh, which would have like a lot of plastic, you know, essentially like Zone Mortalis, but in plastic and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but we did a bunch of um, uh, proposals for different races based on some. So towers one, which was kind of. Tower was based on an idea I had for a new 40k army when I was 16, um, and I and I, I I still had with me, and I kind of still had loads of notes. Essentially, the basic concept of the four cast and the fifth cast. Uh, in my version, they were psychic. In the version that came mm -hmm. out, they were obviously you know not psychic, but they had other control things. Uh, but then we had the Necrons. They were a raiding force. They'd been released as a raiding force in in um, in White Dwarf, but it's like yeah. making up a full army. Mm. There were the Catan, which were these. Uh, the, so the Necrons were like the ancient Terminator, uh, Chaos Android, you know, what the Necrons yeah. were. And then we had the Catan, which were the opposite. They're more like an Ultron style, super sophisticated, uh, uh, super robots type thing. We hadn't really. There was, this was much more mood board and kind of a few cool lines and stuff like that. It wasn't any really developed background. It was more imagery based because Vinch's company. Um, and stuff like that um so so that was the idea behind and that was just based on the single line from the old codex imperialis of the um uh the quiescent perils of the Catan that lie beyond the gates of Val. one line and we're like okay what is the quiescent perils of the Catan? cool so that was another uh another thing the crute were going to be an army an army it was going to be a mercenary army so again uh you know this idea of because uh, again the crute appeared in third edition 40k on a little there's like uh, Dave Gallagher did these little sketches of aliens, and there was like a space cave, and there was like an amble or whatever, and stuff. and then one that was like uh, just this. It, it looked more like Groot, to be honest, funnily enough. And I suspect the names came from Alan Merritt, who's a very big Marvel fan, and it was called a Groot. Now they're more bird-like, we just assume it's sort of like they're the, the way they talk is Groot, Groot. Um, <laughs> uh, 
So, so there was a proposal for to, to recruit, and then there was an army called the Demiurge, who uh, were basically <laughs> a, a new take on the squats. Yeah, and Jez had come up with ideas of asteroid miners and all kinds of cool concepts stuff like that. So, and funnily enough, of all the bits, the 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 the, the Demiurge kind of made it into Battlefleet Gothic for the town later on. But of all those races that we proposed, all of them got used apart from the Demiurge in one way or another because the crew ended up. Oh, it's frozen up again. Oh no, come on guys. We did all this, uh, and then Game Workshop picked up the Lord of the Rings license and did Fellowship of the Ring as a big game for that Christmas. But anyway, so they ended up doing a big game and a new army as well. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and uh, but there's there's a fine, so, the, so yeah, the squats, you know, it's like, it can be done, and I think... There's big questions about is there a finite number of armies that a range can sustain, mm. um, which it may well be, but that doesn't mean that necessarily you can't bring out a new army and slightly basically semi-retire an old army. But then which one do you know? So that you could maybe you could backfoot maybe the Egyptian Canicus and put and bring out the squats, and and then, so the idea was that maybe you'd have a core of maybe eight or nine armies. And then three or four other armies that kind of aren't, aren't as massive in terms of physically the number of miniatures in the range and stuff, but also uh, are kind of slightly more peripheral in the background sense. So that was, that was kind of one of the things we always played around with. And then maybe they, they could do things that way or not, you know. Um, uh, so, you know, five years ago, I probably said, no, you probably won't see squats. These days you might do, but there's like, uh, like the GC the Colts, you know, what's old is new again. It's, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not what it used to be and all the rest of it. So, something of that scale, potentially, where, you know, where you're not looking at 20 box sets and, you know, a range of, you know, that, that size, but maybe, you know, three character types, and a, cool, a couple of cool vehicles and three or four squads, you know. It sounds insane to say, we go, well, that's perfectly manageable for games workshop these days. <laughs> um, you know, if but it comes from the miniature side. You know, it's like if they've got the design, the design desire and a need. You know, and they see where that fits in, and they can make these cool models and all the rest of it. And somebody wants to push that through on the miniatures design side, and then it gels in with all the other kind of sales stuff. Then it would happen. Um, but it's you know they're fighting with every other cool idea out there for the same resources and things. So, mm-hmm. um, but it can be done. It can be put. You know, things can be made to work. You know, the Eldar needs lots of love i feel as an eldar fan there you know and things like that but then every, you know the sister battle of getting the big shot in the arm they're kind of being pushed up to the big leagues now and that kind of stuff so it's always slightly changing you know yeah. the, uh and but it's never quite as simple as just like well make more models because you're like there are real world consequences about how big stores are and how big a range is and how you know how does that cannibalize other sales and all other kind of boring stuff that has to be borne in mind unfortunately yeah, yeah. I waited years for de- for Death Watch, and it was right. always just around the corner. Um, well, you see, because uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I've got Death Watch. Death Watch was something. So I, when I, I wrote Inquisitor in two thousand, and the idea behind that was to delve into all these different ideas that weren't suitable for the forty k battlefield. <laughs> but they were that was the whole thing. It was like they were individual miniatures. And so Death Watch, you know, the whole thing about Death Watch was like, well, if you had a squad of them, if you had a kill team of Death Watch, was an extraordinary thing. You know, it was never intended to be an army. That was, that's what made it different from like Grey Knights, you know, and the mm. Sisters of Battle. It was they operated again at a different level. There was a very exceptionally specialist that you might get a Death Watch 
Space Marine attached to your army, or maybe mm. a whole squad, which, you know, um, and then, yeah, and then that kind of, you know, thing is the, the commercial imperative to turn that into an army for 40k and sell more is there. And it doesn't change the idea. And I, it's not, I don't think it's devalued and stuff, but it's, it's not what it was invented for in the same kind of way. And that has consequences on its background and the way they're portrayed in the game and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So. So I always thought it would be something like Imperial Agents, where you could have like a sort of Death Watch and then Assassin and yep. sort of on the side of a crusade. And then you get the whole codex and you're like, cool, now where do I start? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, and again, it's, it's about, you know, again, shifting perspectives and stuff like that, you know, of, of portraying how the Inquisition works in 40k. And so you've got this thing where, aha, uh-huh, right, suddenly the Death Watch are like an army. And so the, the, the Inquisition can call on, go, the Inquisition can call on any army they want. They're the Inquisition. That's how it works. <laughs> they don't need their own army. They can have specialists and things mm. that they can deploy to other people. All right, we'll send some Death Watch over to them because we'll, we'll com- you know, we can command them to go over and assist them. But actually, if they want an army of Space Marines, they rock up to a Space Marine homeworld and say, can you help us, please? And then Space Marines may either say yes or no. If they want, you know, 20 Imperial Guard regiments, they say, raise us 20 Imperial Guard regiments. You know, they don't, the Inquisition doesn't, very deliberately does not need its own forces, you know, because of the way it operates and its position within the universe is to use everybody else's, you know, uh, and, you know, with that little Inquisition, we'll just go to a governor and go, your world is mine now for the, for the, for the time I need it. So, um, and always, so bits of that get thought, changed, you know, as the game changes. Yeah. I always thought the Death Watch was kind of like all all the chat, all the different chapters coming to an agreement that there is such a pain in the ass having these Inquisitors turning up and just saying, <laughs> "I want to borrow that company." They figure if we make a little bit of investment each, maybe they'll leave us alone and we can take our own fights. <laughs> yeah, <place." laughs> that's yeah, that pretty much it, really. This idea of the under ancient oath. It's like, yeah, fine, we'll just send. Like, you won't have to keep asking us. We'll send you five guys every century. And then you send it back and send you over five guys. Uh, provide, you know, however many come back. And, and yeah, so this idea of the standard agreement um, yeah. as, a, as an inquisitorial force. Because I suppose that's the thing as well is people people can't help but start to think in just terms of modern command structures and how things work. And you go, well, no, I mean, within certain militaries in the Imperium, that may work, you know, within a chapter or an Imperial Guard regiment or things like that. But actually, the reality is between these things, there's no organisation whatsoever. You've got the Departmental Munitorium that's kind of responsible, supposedly, for kind of managing a lot of this stuff, and particularly Imperial organisations. But, the, you know, remember that the Depths of the Starties is kind of like more of an ally of the Imperium than, than the, the foot soldiers, you know. They turn up when they want to, but they've got this ancient, you know, it's like, oh, somebody's invaded Poland, we need to respond, rather than, you know, uh, well, actually, somebody issues a, a command on terror and suddenly 10 Space Marine Legions have to answer sort of thing. And I think that's what's great about it, actually, is... Because people, again, people think it should work somehow. They go, oh, yes, but, you know, well, why why is there this breaking ranks? There needs to be somewhere in here. And how does it and go, no, it doesn't work. Because that's not how, because, again, it's not based on a efficient model of military perfection and professional soldiery that, you know, most Western militaries are these days. It's based on individual companies and regiments raised on an ad hoc basis from a a thousand different worlds at any given moment and thrown together in a war zone just to stop the green aliens rampaging, <laughs> you know, and and do and and so it works despite itself, not because of 
I think, in the same people, way that old armies used to do. You know, people forget that they're fanatics, essentially, yes. especially the Space Marines, but even down to your Imperial Guard regiments. It's essentially a religious crusade against everything that's different. And in the case of the Space Marines, it is okay, we're going to pump them full of weird, weird and wonderful things, turn them into hyper masculine killing machines. And then we're going to fill their head full of righteous rage and say, kill that. Yeah, absolutely. Don't kill that this time. Kill that this time. <laughs> they, they, what epitomizes, there's a, I can't even remember. Uh, I think it might, oh, I can't remember the book. It's a Horus Heresy book. It's basically Space Wolves and they're helping a, a planet uh, that has been ravaged by um, Dark Eldar. And um, yep. I, I can't remember the name of it. It's going to annoy me now. But Is it, uh, is that, I can't remember if that one is Howl of the Hearthworld. Yeah, maybe. Uh, so basically, I can't remember if it's that one or if there's another one. It's basically because at the very end of it, no, spoiler right, it was written ages ago, but spoiler alert, you know, he, he sort of, they help the, 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 uh, the, the local sort of humans on the planet sort of uh, get rid of, um, get rid of the bad guys. And the, um, he turns around, he says, oh, cheers to the Space Wolves. He says, like, we want independence. We don't want to be a part of the Empire. We don't want to be a part of the Imperium. And the Space Wolf just kills him. And it's just like, wow. Yeah. And that's like the entire thing where they're basically dying and helping these guys out. And at the very end, he's like, but we don't want to be a part of the Imperium. And he's went tough and he kills him. And it's just like, wow. And that just shows you that, that that's it. Just like, they have that one drive and that's it. And I was just like, that blew me away. I loved it. I thought it was so good. I did uh, for third edition 40k. One of the bits in the back of it is an Inquisitor's report, uh, sort of like post-action report. Um, when the White Consuls respond to a request for aid of rebellion on a particular world, um, and so they just turn up and basically destroy all the defences, so wipe out all the orbital defences, take out all of the ground defences, decapitate the leadership, kill everybody, and then go again. <laughs> and just leave the world defenseless. So the Inquisitor is like, this, this was, this wasn't very useful. Uh, you know, it's like because if the orcs had just turned up, you know, whatever the world was complete. But the, the space marines is like, well, so it was the, the the subtext being, be careful what you ask the space marines yeah. to do for you, sort of thing, because they will do it. But they, there's things they don't do. They don't rebuild your world afterwards. You know, that's not what they're for. Well, is that- um, they're too busy for a start. Well, it's like the, it's the, uh, there, there's the, the common saying with the, obviously the heresy wolves, but you've got, is it, uh, oh, Emperor's. Snapped. I think you've vanished again. Oh, God damn it. Where are the old he does this. You get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's my OBS. It's kicking on. Uh, time and space. Yeah. You, oh, sorry. Am I back? Am I back? Yes, yep. you are. Sorry, but OBS, it just plays up now and again. So apologies for people if it's been zoning out now and again. It just does this. It's annoying. But uh, I could hear you talking, so it's definitely OBS this time. But yeah, sorry. Um, there's uh, in Emperor's Gift, I think, we're basically Space Rules versus Grey Knights. And yeah. um, <laughs> they basically fight the Grey Knights over the fact that the Grey Knights wanted to destroy um, the, the Armageddon. And they were like, yes, well... That's right. And they're like, well, you can't do that because they fought beside us. And there's a war fought effectively between two Space Marine Legions, uh, or chapters even, um, over, you know, human beings, which is obviously the juxtaposed to what that I, I, I just <clears throat> said about, you know, they, they don't care. They will just do what they're told. Yes, absolutely. I mean, well, I think that's the thing is you, you can have this 
this position and people, you know, the ultimate answer when anyone asks any particular question about space marines, the the first answer is always it depends on the chapter, you know, because it doesn't have these chapter cults and very different kind of moral issues and and, and viewpoints and stuff like that. But actually, uh, you know, in a similar situation, you know, the space wars kind of got away with that because they were a first founding chapter and immensely immense political power just by that dint of their name. Whereas later on. <laughs> Uh, again, somebody dealt with a little bit my Aaron again later on. You had the um, uh, Celestial Lions in the Third Wolfram again, who kind of got into a similar situation and got on the wrong side of the Inquisition, and the Inquisition screwed them, you know, basically. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, and now, you know, they're almost wiped out. So, you know, that, that, and that, for me, that's kind of, yeah, the essence of 40k, and also the essence of the Space Marines, you know, they're this thing aside from, they're not, they're not hardwired into the rest of the Imperium. Now, this thing that operates alongside it, you know, there are another, the light Adeptus Mechanicus, again, you know, people have to remember there's actually two allied empires. One is the Adeptus Mechanicus and one is the Imperium that happen to have this common goal. But where there's fractures and, and individual kind of agendas and stuff like that, that's that's mm. sometimes an alliance of convenience that doesn't hold. Uh, uh, all of which also is kind of justification for your army can fight any other army. That's not, you know, it's like, there's not always just simulations um, and stuff like that. You go, no, there are occurrences when the Blood Angels have fought the Ultramarines because they had a had an honor fight or they fell out or, you know, whatever, this company yeah, turned you, up at the wrong time. Or Blood Angels fought, fought with Necrons to fight Tyranids. Well, I think so. Again, that's one of those that, you know, this is where you have to be careful about internet memes of background and how mm. something portrayed in long form makes more sense than, the, oh, yeah, it was just like a... You know, we're called bro friends, fist bump, let's go. You know, was, <laughs> you know uh, it was, you know, the two two forces uh, at, at a very particular moment in time did a thing. And actually, the, the existence of it almost highlights the, how rare it is, if you see what I mean. So yeah. there was, um, because, because, yeah, that that's one of those uh, kind of decisions, I suppose, as a writer, people sort of say, you know, um, you have to find different ways to threaten space marines, in a, in a mm. sense. And the, the best way to do that is to challenge their beliefs and their worldview, not their physical being, because they're not afraid, you know, the, the toughest guys on the block and stuff like that. So something like, we either lose the battle and lose the world, or we have to ally with the Necrons, mm. which again is against everything our tenants believe in, which, you know, it's like choosing, but 40k is built on impossible decisions like that. And so to, to, to create a situation like that for the space marines is actually very is, is at the heart of it but of course there's only there's different ways you can portray stuff through the background and particularly the style of background in the codex mm. um whereas you go well actually if that was something that occurred in a novel and there have been lots of build-up to it and you understood the characters involved and all the rest of it then it, it would feel like a, a cool finale or you know mm. or end of second act or whatever whereas actually obviously sometimes it stands out because it's a, one one paragraph in a lot of paragraphs in a codex that makes it seem normal as opposed to remarkable because it hasn't had the build up i suppose because there was one they left sort of hovering as a plot device hanging in the in the corner that they they diverted a what an awkward didn't they to head off a tyranny dive fleet yeah that was and yeah and they had to hi hover around the edges being quite scared as to what was going to happen when one of them won yes <laughs> no, well that was it that was definitely they a, both evolve and get bigger and we're going to kick this can really far along the road and then yeah it's probably going to circle around and hit us but for now yeah <laughs> Um, <laughs> moving, uh, moving to back to uh, the fantasy battle. Are you are you glad to see that they they're looking into bringing back the old world? Um, 
well, yeah, in a sense. I mean, I, I have to see what opportunities there are to write in it, really. Yeah. Um, a, do you think? It, do you think it will be so, based on the old, you know, the actual world? So it'll be sort of prequel type stuff, or? Uh, well, uh, I don't know. My 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 ill-informed supposition would be that it seems to be. I mean, the, the, I don't. Uh, there may be. Uh, I suppose there's a subtlety of difference, and I'm not quite sure. Of is it the old world pre sort of storm of chaos, everything going bang, end times, or is it because because there is a period, there is a like a at the end of the end times, mm. you know, that's quite that's actually a sort of a, a substantial period of time to left to explore and lots of interesting things happening, mm. which got covered in very short order in the extant background and then it all went pop. Um, so it's like, well, it depends how lot how far back they wind the clock. Is it so it uh, and which depends on what their aim is for the game. You know, I can't necessarily answer that question because I don't know. You know that's not the question that's been asked. There's a miniatures range in the game being designed for a particular reason within Games Workshop, mm. and I don't know the, the the what things are supposed to address as to, you know, is it to make use? Is it to be a very distinct miniatures range of its own kind, in which case like an end times Warhammer place, which actually, you know, uh, fundamentally. Uh, of you know, just just with my my Warhammer Lawmaster commercial hat on, you go. Well, if it's just like from before the end times, and is it a vehicle for people to use their old armies, but but uh, with a sprinkling of new models and things like that, you go. Well, okay, how, uh, is there that much money in there? I'm not quite sure. Or is it a well, actually, because a lot of the more portable bits of of Warhammer are now actually ending up in Age of Sigmar with the Cities of Sigmar and all this kind of stuff. Um, so, and I think. You know that, in, in some ways, that horse has long bolted. Now it's like no, people aren't going to come necessarily if they've been kind of disappointed over the last four years of Age of Sigmar or whatever. They're not necessarily going to come back now. Um, so, is it a case of creating this, using the Warhammer to create another sort of IP mm. place that Ford World can explore, um, a la like Epic, uh, not Epic, sorry, Adeptus Titanicus and Blood Bowl, you know, that size of a kind of range in commitment is something slightly different. So uh, depending on what, which of those things they want to do is it will shape the version of the background they portray. Uh, but as far as I'm aware, you know, it's Warhammer. I mean, it's not it's not a different part of it. Um, I mean, they could do something uh, completely crazy and, you know, do Warhammer Time of Three Emperors or Warhammer, you know, uh, I always thought it'd be if they wanted to kind of do some cool stuff and and have playing room and having Warhammer, uh, Great War Against Chaos. So rather than the end times, but the Magnus the Pious and uh, the Great War Against Chaos at the end of the time of Free Emperors and all kinds of other stuff. You go lots of interesting things you can do there, and it's again, it's all kind of wide open for for adding stuff in, um, and you're not bogged down with all the baggage of the end times and the stuff that came. You know, you're not on a deadline necessarily. Uh, because again, you might be portraying in the same way that Adeptus Titanicus was was kind of remodeled to portray a very particular slice of the, the Horus Heresy. I could see a, a, a specialist games where I'm a fantasy battle uh, background, which does the same thing. It takes a particular slice of the Warhammer world at a particular time or a particular place and explores that in depth rather than breadth. I think that's one of the things as well is. The main ranges are very broad, but actually Forge World and Black Libraries have very good at delving down into 
depth, you know, whether that be the Adeptus Mechanicus or the Horus Heresy, or you know, obviously Ford Rudge love tanks, so, you know, tanks, yeah. tanks, 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 <laughs> um, and other things. Um, what was the... So, uh, so, yeah, I don't know, it's... Uh, what was the... You want to see really? What was the? Uh, there was um, uh, like I love Epic. Epic was like you know oh, I, I really loved Epic. So I'm kind of hoping Adeptus Titanicus to turn into Epic eventually at some point in time. Um, sorry, I'm girlfriend, girlfriend. Epic yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, there was there was a fantasy battle version of um, Epic. I can't even remember the what was it called? War Master. War Master. Do you think yeah. they could go along that line with it? They could sort of, you know, uh, aff- effectively epic, and it would be the equivalent of the Titanicus, but for Fantasy Battle. Um, uh, they could go along that line. Um, in theory, I don't think that's what they're planning with some of the, st- the kind of like the little sketches they showed of some like Kislevite and stuff. That's all far too detailed for like yeah. 10 mil and stuff like that. So I think that's possible, um, but I don't think, I mean, Warmaster was an interesting one because that was like Rick's little, I had to say, say pet project because it was quite popular and quite a good game and stuff. But that was very much a, a you know, what scale and what kind of scale of historical games and stuff haven't we applied to Warhammer yet? Um, and, and the idea of doing this 10 mil game. So, um, funnily enough, talking about squats, I still think squats worked best in Epic. Yeah. With, with the big guns and <laughs> yeah, the yeah, overall yeah. armored airship oh, and yeah. the lantern, because you could do them properly. Now, of course, 40Ks changed, so you're actually doing, again, doing some big, chunky war machines. Um, isn't, they're not completely alien to the 40K table now, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, I mean, Armageddon is basically, so, or Apocalypse, is basically the Epic rule set scaled up now, isn't it? Yeah. Now that it's absolutely. a separate thing. Yeah. Like, I giggled an awful lot when I first started going through that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I, I, you know, I just don't. For me, for me, growing up, War Warhammer it was scale. It was epic. It was big battles and things. And I just couldn't get my. As much as I loved, you know, I love the miniatures and things like. I couldn't get my head around the fact that when you played a game, you were using a squad, two squads, three squads. And I was like, but but in all the books I read and stuff, there's hundreds of them. That you know, there's 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 entire legions crashing against each other. There's massive war machines, and I'm not getting to do this. And even now, in eighth, uh, sort of eighth edition, sorry ninth edition, um, you've got you know two thousand points doesn't get you very much. And I just was, like, why can't we just have something that's a bit more thematic, something that is epic? You know, literally in, in, encapsulates that word instead of having this is an epic battle with ten guys. And I'm like, eh, it's not really epic, is it? Yeah, I don't think, interestingly, I think, I mean, it wasn't the most popular version, but one of the most interesting things we did when we did Epic 40,000, other than putting things on strip bases rather than square, was uh, we tried, you know, when Jervis and Andy Chambers started designing it, they took 40k battle reports and kind of scaled them down. Uh, kind of like before that one, mm. not Epic Armageddon, Epic 40,000, yeah. the one that came uh, uh, added John Blanche cover, I think. Um, uh, and, and the idea was that a detachment could be a 40k army. Now, you ended up specialising, really. But that, that there, for the first time, actually, it contextualised the 40k battle, because you could imagine that that army was your 40k game, and as you're playing 40k, there are 20 other games happening either side of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's your epic battle. Um, and of course, it's, it, it changed since then and stuff. But I think that's always been... Uh, well, there's always been a couple of things about the GW games, one of which is there's never been any 
kind of stated figure scale or ground scale about, you know, this guy equals, you know, 20 guys on the battlefield and, you know, whether it's like if you're doing like the 100 years war and, and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff that historical gamers really get uh, vexed about. Um, there's always game first and, and, and a number of models in a unit essentially as wound counters, but also um, <clears throat> potentially the idea why you had special characters and quite powerful things in a small space was like, this was, this was potentially the hinge point of much larger battle. The mm. fighting or the scenario contextualize it in some other way um so i don't think we get necessarily that sense of that now i think like you say 40k tries to be the epic battle on a small table with models that are too big um a bit too much but then it but it can it sort of changes it slightly with stratagems uh and and the way stuff kind of sequences and the size of, of, of certain models and things um kind of gets around that i suppose you know the lots of stuff kind of dealt with through rules um i suppose rather than miniatures in miniatures certain things would you know like your death strike well, got death strikes in 40k now as well obviously but you can fire them at the next gw store um phone them up and say he's playing 40k right because then a vortex missile land in the middle um, <laughs> someone did that we they, did they... we did that well that was on uh one about when we started uh the apocalypse battle report i think we had uh, we had a big battle on one thing, and then we had another battle with the battery of basilisks on another in Warhammer World, and they could fire onto our table, basically, because um, they were there was literally off-table support, but there was an attack on the off-table support, which I love. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. big off-table battles and stuff like that again was what. In fact, actually, yeah, it, was, it wasn't even Apocalypse. It was kind of proto-Apocalypse. I think you're right. It was Armageddon campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a similar sort of thing. They're like, I think it was like. Was it like Storm Boys and stuff attacking the Basilisks? There was another great one, which was I think there was a, which was, was it the Necrons versus Sisters or something like that, where there was a fight above ground, and then there was a fight in the, like the Tomplex un- complex underneath, which was like a kill team sort of fight and a 40k fight, I think. But again, yeah, you want to go up to that epic. You want to do the next one up, Battlefleet Gothic. Yeah, that was yeah, always, yeah. That was always the dream. Never did it. You know, that that com- that completely top down campaign where you fight. The Battlefleet Gothic game, and then you get orbital supremacy, and you do your drop, oh. drop, drop, uh, drop zone commander, that, and um, yeah. does this sort of thing. But the idea, and then, and then you could fight the epic battle, which is you know, and then once you get possession of the buildings or whatever, then you fight the forty k battle. I don't think you could necessarily get to the, you know, then you fight the mm. kill team, but you could do, you know, you could. The, I think forty k handles that scales down to the the big fight between you know the, the guys at the end, or whatever. <laughs> you know. Um, and obviously, and then you know you'd have this big map on a wall somewhere where you'd feel very much like a, a commander in 40k, where you just go, you know, there's massive battles and stuff, and you just like eat, eat, and just do a little. I'd love it. I'd love it. I, I, you know, that's yeah. literally my dream. <laughs> something that big. <laughs> yeah, I'd there love was, something like that. Because there was one of the um, independents that was that did. Um, they had sci-fi war game. They had a space war game, and I remember going back about four or five years ago. They they folded. I think they got bought by. Um, one of the others but they had this thing where they actually were demonstrating um a thing they had a table which was running a space war game yeah. they had a table that was running their skirmish scale 28 scale mil war game and then <laughs> using the same files they'd skipped it down and they'd printed in 10 mil so you could play an epic type game right. and then zoom it through and i yeah. don't think they ever pulled it off i think they overran their sort of their, their dreams overran their cash their cash flow <laughs> And they ended up having to sell up, but they they actually had that running, and it was so cool. Yeah. 
because you just had these 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 sort of like fifty year old beardy wargamers just sitting there like they didn't know where to look and they looked like they were going to collapse out of like sheer happiness and delirium <laughs> yeah. trying to yes. figure out where to focus first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think one of the issues because uh, yeah, everyone would love to do that. Unfortunately, the commercial reality it hits is nobody has the time to. You know, um, it's short of you know when we all get to retire in our air bubbles <laughs> in 20 years' time uh, and we're playing virtually. I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, it, but that's been, I mean, like those kind of campaigns have been what I've always wanted to do since I got into kind of wargaming and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I like, refight the you know, battles for North Africa and, and you know, on you know reading too many kind of books by Donald Featherston and stuff. But, um, and the same with 40K, you know, in fact, I found the other day, and I don't know why I've still got it. I've got a massive piece of paper that's got an old epic campaign map on it, which was essentially <laughs> a load of, a load of kind of like, the, it's got all the train and stuff drawn on it. Essentially, a bunch of four by eight or four by six tables in a grid and stuff like that, and, and roads between them and all that kind of stuff. I must have done when I was about seventeen, I guess. Wow. That I've just, I, unfortunately, I don't have the epic orc army that I had then, but I've, I've still got this. I've got this piece of paper for some reason. I know I'd rather swap, and I'd still have my Epic or Carmy. <laughs> I mean, I got into 40k through Epic. Basically, that was the, was the first game I played I... the most. Adept's Titanicus was my real first taste yeah. of 40k. In, so I don't know. I came if it was for Epic 40,000, the one before, because I came Space... in with Space Marines. Yes, yeah, Space Marines. And I bought right. Hive War, and I bought Hive yes. War, and started, I, I had like five five Bio Titans and. Yeah. The hive, the hive, the hive queen, and all that sort of thing, and and um, Harridans and stuff, and I missed that a little bit. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I know absolutely. I love it. I think um, I mean, there's still quite a strong net epic mm. uh, following and stuff. Again, obviously not particularly many events and stuff, but that's one that's kind of ongoing, and that's the same as this. That that uh, it's for the second edition Space Marine, I think, mm. uh, was the peak for a lot of us. Um, that. Uh, grew up with epic and as much as i love epic armageddon and i love epic 40,000, and the thing is the games are slightly different enough that they're all viable takes on an epic game system and each acts a slightly different way but you can't i can't fight the nostalgia of putting down those little order counters and oh, give, yeah. and gargans acting like battleships with like all ahead full and you know turn right and having really you know Riggers fighting fires and all that kind of stuff. Mm. You know, I had a gargant big one. I had six great gargants and like four slasher gargants and uh, cult of speed and all kind. You know, I had a big orc army. I, that was and, and painted and complete more than any Warhammer or 40k army I had. Oh my god, army. yeah. But, but epic um, was so easy to paint, wasn't it? It was. It was. Dab, yeah. Dab, 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 dab. My father sort of brought back. Uh, we didn't have Games Workshop in in Northern Ireland, so Virgin Megastore sold. Um, you know, Games Workshop stuff and Citadel type stuff. So my dad set me, got me back some like Space Marines, uh, and I got Rogue Trader as well. My first, my first Warhammer book was Rogue Trader. But my first sort of experience of a Games Workshop uh, was when I was in Oxford at my grandparents, and uh, my dad said, "Do you want something?" And I saw the Space Marine box, and I went, "I want that." And the Space Marine box was the first thing that I got from a Games Workshop. And I loved it. And I have always, you know, from that point on, I was like, this is how, this is how, you know, you know, these battles should be. And I loved it. And, you know, I'm gutted that they just don't do it anymore because, you know. Yeah. I must be, I prefer like the absolute opposite. I prefer like the skamish games. Like literally it's like five space marines against five space marines. And literally that kind okay. of group. 
Yeah, basically killed it. I mean, like, uh, back in the years ago, far longer than I care to remember, one of my favourite games was literally five space screens and five space screens in a battle, completely balanced team, and we have to come up with tactics where yeah. we could take out the other guy without exposing ourselves. Funny, as you say, my, my very first game of 40k at my mate Richard's house, and we had we had rotated, and we had, and we had basically our first game was we had a hill and we had a spaceman captain each, and basically we spent the entire game running around the hill throwing grenades indirectly at exactly. Well, that was 40. I mean, we'd done some war gaming and stuff before that. I remember having uh, tank battles, Panzer IVs versus Shermans up and down these stairs and stuff, but um. But yeah, so that was our first experience of 40k. It was like, um, yeah, that was a different. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, we've, we've painted space marines on the polystyrene hill. Um, oh, dear. So, Those are the days. Oh, my no, no, no. days. Now we have um, Kill Team for that. Yeah. yeah. And then you have your Armageddon, which is basically epic, but with 28 mil vehicles. And then you have 40k in the middle, which can't decide quite what it wants to be, but it gives you a huge amount of toys. <laughs> yeah. What yeah, it wants think... to be is annoying. To it's it, it keeps on nerfing space wolves, and it's annoying me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. As, as a newbie at space wolves for ninth edition, I'm quite enjoying them at the moment. I kind of inadvertently creamed an awful lot of Eldar yesterday morning. So mm. Kev, I have to ask, what are you <laughs> playing at the moment? Like, no lockdown, everything permitting. Like, what are your it's games of choice? Uh, well, uh, right. Well, um, so what was I doing? Well, just before lockdown, I. Uh, and what I'd really like to get back to is playing Depths of Titanicus and Warcry, actually. Really enjoyed Warcry. I had a game, I had an evening playing it. We had got about four games in with Guy Haley uh, in Bugman's. Um, and I've painted all my stuff now and all the rest. It's great. Um, and Depths of Titanicus, for all the reasons we're talking about, you know, again, I I grew up with, uh, uh, you know, my formative years with, you know, the the one of the first boxes I bought was the six battle titans in a box, yeah. and halved it with my mate. We had three titans each, and Nemesis class Warbringers, and all kinds of other stuff. Um, and 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 uh, so like the new version, you know, hits all the models are really nice to put together. And although I drove myself insane painting them because I decided to be uh, went for Legio Presagius, have got blue and white, and painting white is just a nightmare. Um, uh, and I keep putting together my reavers, so I've killed two reavers so far. Because <laughs> I, I keep trying to pose them and then gluing them, and then they don't fit. Um, but but it, but playing the game hits all the right, you know, the, the the power management and all that kind of stuff. You know, and again, the scale of it is is right. And uh, I think you know you have just about the same. You know, you have three or four titans, depending on what they are. Maybe a few knights is kind of cool. I like that, and that's nice and manageable. And uh, similarly. Um, uh, so that's kind of like for for games workshop. Although I, I I keep forgetting when people ask about hobby stuff, I'm actually uh, collecting the Mortal Realms part work with my son Sammy. So he's oh, put right. together all the Stormcast, and I'm doing the ghosts. Basically, <laughs> so I am actually gradually collecting a um, spirit, uh, uh, you know, kind of like an undead ghosts army for Age of Sigma. Um, sort of like every every few weeks as we get we're a bit behind now but i think i'm not in any rush um <laughs> uh, and then terrain stuff and it's, it's one of those i looked at and go it's for as value for money goes it's probably not the best value for money but actually it's paced and, and we get all the background and he enjoys you know we get he gets so it's actually addressed to him through the post and he likes you know all of that sort of stuff so it's great fun it's a real sharing moment and actually i am i am gradually collecting an army as well um 
so um, I would like to play some games with them at some point as well. It would be nice. Um, and then I've been doing a bit of role playing actually. That's um, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the things available, you know, uh, over Discord. Basically, I had a role playing group which was a Games Workshop based one actually with a few people at Games Workshop, and then we all variously left and stuff. So it finished about our last campaigns finished about ten years ago. I've not really done any role playing since, and I had a real hankering at the start of this year. So, like end of last year, there's lots of cool role playing games coming out, and I've back got some from Kickstarter, and lots of good things happening in the role playing community. Um, and so I was like, oh yeah, let's get the band back together, kind of stuff. Um, and and it sort of it was we were we're all still, well, most of us are still kind of based around Nottingham stuff, but all over the place. So finding a physical venue was proving a bit problematic mm. one that wasn't going to cost us loads and, and stuff like that and then funnily enough and then weirdly enough this this uh, coronavirus hit and it was all lockdown stuff so we were forced to go online and that actually helped us basically get our act together because like, well i don't have to worry about that now we're gonna have to we'll just try and do it over discord and i'll put maps up on d20 and we'll do a thing so i'm doing a judge dread uh the new judge red and world oh. 2000 ad game um which is fun. We're a few, we've kind of we've done the intro scenario shootout kind of stuff, and we're getting into a proper investigation and stuff now. And there's a few things I'm tweaking and kind of thinking about doing with it as we go. But it's more about the you know, for me, you know, 2000 AD is is on the same level as 40k as in influences and things that are there in my in mm. my because like yeah. pre-teen and teen years is just stuff that filtered into my brain. So playing Just Dread is kind of fun. But I've got the original Just Dread kind of like role-playing game and stuff as well. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so there's that, and I'm going to be starting another one, another group soonish as well uh, for a role-playing game called Heart um, by Rowan Rook and Deckard, which is an amazing game, just crazy, very much more storytelling and stuff like that. But just uh, if people like 40k and weirdness and stuff, it's very body horror. And uh, anyway, so that's that was a Kickstarter, um, which we're trying to run over Discord again soon, hopefully. Um, but I, I've, yeah, lots of people have been taking the opportunity to paint stuff, and I suppose I have a bit. Um, I've been painting. I've been painting up a bunch of non-GW dwarfs of various manufacturers and Kickstarters and other things for, for a view of just doing like um, having a force of dwarfs for something like um, Dragon <laughs> Rampant or uh, the Saga Age of Magic and stuff like that. You know, it's like mm. non hammer systems just like oh cool dwarf models and i don't have to worry you know system agnostic stuff i'll I'll just paint them and i i love dwarfs models um and so yeah so i've been adding to that revisiting them and then there's another game which i really like if you like skirmish games but which i i sing the praises of which is called uh twilight world of anna real and annie rao not quite sure how you pronounce it um uh, which is affectionately known as Battle Fraggles. Um, <laughs> uh, um, uh, done by a guy called uh, Michael Thorpe. Uh, and he's been doing them for years. And he, usually, he doesn't go to shows and stuff. He just goes to Salute. And he's run a few Kickstarters and stuff. But basically, there's, there's no humans in this world. They're all these these sort of strange creatures, like quite Jim Henson-esque, Dark Crystal kind of slightly inspired creatures and stuff. And, and Skirmish Game is very scenario based, very narrative, a few models on each side. It doesn't use dice, it has these little interesting kind of like basically combat stones and stuff. So you draw stuff in it out of a bag and you kind of throw these stones and depending on which side up they are, size so combat and stuff. So it's quite it's quite different to anything out there. And the models are lovely to paint. They're not like super detailed, but that's kind of what I like. One of the things I've realized is 
I can paint more of the, you know, some of these models in the time it takes me to put together some plastics from DW, you know, it's just that when they're done, they're beautiful, but the process sometimes of putting together a unit for like Age of Sigma 40K is just like, oh my word, you know, it's like, did, did I really need to have a, you know, a separate thumb for this piece? Um, <laughs> whatever because of some some interesting you know it's like but you know the, the results are there but they some nice this one of the reasons to do some of the other the other painting as well of just of like old kind of single piece metal castings and stuff of just like these are nice these are actually quite relaxing to paint and they're simple and straightforward and i don't have to go oh look, oh, look i've missed all those skulls around the back <laughs> you know or whatever it might be so um do you find yourself being slightly over, like with the advent of Kickstarter and the fact that you know, um, th- you know, three D printing and um, you know, molding in sort of plastic molds for, for for figures is a lot cheaper than it probably was back in the day. That there's a lot of games coming out now. Do you feel slightly overwhelmed? by the by this there's so many games so like i personally uh i get little panic attacks because there's so many different systems and you kind of want to play them all but you can't yeah i mean uh i I do have a kickstarter habit i mean i I don't just do i mean i don't i do a few miniatures i don't do a lot of miniatures through kickstarter i do quite a few board games do some comics and and a couple of other bits and pieces of kind of specialist interest um uh, and I am a, I am a super backer, apparently. Oh, no. <laughs> I've, I've backed about 135. Well, I thought I was, but I've got 52, I think. Yeah. <laughs> that was I mean, that's over, over a period of time, obviously. And like I said, some of them are just like a single comic book and stuff. They're not, they're not all like, you know, um, Darker Dungeons, $200 sink. So I've got a few. Mm. Cthulhu Wars was a big one I did. Uh, and Ares Games, um, Sales of Glory was one of my, another one of my early ones. I was like, I'm just going to go all in and get all the ships. I love Napoleonic ships. The Napoleonic ship game, yeah, just give it to me. Just, oh, <laughs> Take you know, my money. So, yeah. Um, and then it's in the cupboard up there. And, no, in fact, actually, it's worse than that. It's now in the attic. Um, <laughs> it just takes up so much room. So it's yeah. like, well, if I get to use this, I'll go up there and I'll bring it down. But it's just. Um, so I do, yeah, I do buy I back. Uh, quite a lot of Kickstarters, but I've actually uh, there's two things. I don't do a lot of the big ones, especially not the big kind of miniature slash board game, cool mini or not one. Just one because I I kind of got that out of my system with uh, like I say a couple of the big all in ones um, uh, early on in my Kickstarter habit. But also I, and I just physically I don't have the space for them, and I know I just won't have the time to play them. But I, I came just a few days ago. Um, when I was looking, it's like oh, I've only got two active Kickstarters. Wow, that's a that's a oh, blind. I don't know when <laughs> that low in a long time. It's like almost having inbox zero, you know. Um, and it's not like they've all arrived. It's just actually too literally active at the moment. And um, uh, and I, it's like I, I'm kind of I I, I know I've got a problem in a sense, you know. And they're all really cool stuff that games like say I want to play and stuff like that. Um, but actually, what I realise is particularly because I'm a freelancer, it's like the more I spend on Kickstarter, the, the more I have to work to pay for my Kickstarter. The <laughs> I feel I you, man. I feel you. <laughs> so I need to just draw the line. And the thing is, people stop, stop making stuff good. Yeah. <laughs> it stresses you know, me. I'm right? for an amazing presentation. Yeah. You know, just like, and that's the thing is, you just look at it and just go, oh, that looks gorgeous. Click. Um, just this, the, the most insane one I love as a board game, not a miniature game, which I've backed and I did a bit of this earlier. Um, I think it's due to arrive next year, which is uh, a game called Beyond Humanity Colonies. 
and it's a board game and it's a colony building board game oh, seen you it, can yeah. play it like solo cooperative competitive it's like a kind of build a martian colony sort of thing except it's not a martian colony it's whatever colony you want um uh but it's full fully technologically integrated so there's an, an app but all the cards and counters and the building things and stuff have all got rfid in them oh, nice. so that when you put a card on a thing it recognizes it and talks to the app and it's all just insane because it's even little leds yeah so it's just not a cheap board game either and so that's kind of crazy yeah but the even crazier thing is they've got this thing uh, on you can on the internet this thing called exogen so i've just started my corporation on this online game which is basically exploring planets and cataloging planets and and all this kind of stuff and there's like a and that'll develop and stuff when i come to get the board game the planets that i've explored with my probes and pioneers and stuff on that game will be available for me to colonize in the board game which will then affect the online game wow and it's like and you that don't have dangerous. to obviously you don't need to you know it's like the online thing is is an extra thing but that's like and you're like and, and all the you know it's like the names that i give stuff on there will then be available in, in my version of the app that i have on the board and you're like yeah i only need one of them games. <laughs> you know it's like, <laughs> it's, 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 but that is only because there's only so much you can handle but you go well that's that's next i would say next generation kind of games design but actually it's not because i don't think you can do too many of those it's just it's just so insanely overspecked yeah. but also amazing I was at the National Video Game Museum uh, a year or so ago, and they actually had uh, running a 40k game, but that using like a camera with image image recognition mm. technology on this um, tablet, and basically going up to each miniature and going, right, what's that one? That's lovely. Yeah, I, I did a bit. And go, okay, which one's that one again? Art, oh, right, brilliant. Yes, I, I it's saw a fantastic thing. One of the Facebook groups where this guy had printed. Um... QR codes with a label underneath the base of all these miniatures. Right. And so if anyone ever asked him, what's that? He'd just say, well, have you got a mobile phone? And get them to zap it, and it would lead well, off to a... a yeah, a, I mean, this was a thing. Yeah, I mean, this was because he was, like I say, he was like doing research and not in university. And, and yeah. there's the, the two computers theories which are kind of understand but not quite which is like there's this idea of the internet of things which is basically like you have the internet in your fridge yeah. and your kettle and all that kind of stuff um uh which is basically about putting chips and stuff into into everything so that would be that kind of idea you know obviously that's uh a, a quite a hands-on way you can do it yourself but the idea that miniatures have chips in them or something else like your phone can recognize or whatever whereas uh the guy with the 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 tablet and the display the the video game uh mm the video arcade museum, whatever they can't really call it. Um we've unfortunately moved to Sheffield now. I um, know. And um uh was that actually you used like the the kind of like the image recognition technology and stuff like that. Like I say so you could point it at a battlefield. Yeah. And then and so rather than the information being in the thing, it's on the internet, but actually the, the interface is different. And he had loads of I mean he scanned he did a three D scan of a couple of like robot models that I'd done and sent them to me and things like that. Um and so that was, yeah, that was all amazing stuff. Again, this idea of being able to do, if like that, that mega campaign we were talking about, that idea of collating it all into one place so that, yeah, like your, your, your guy with the QR code. So you actually, you can document the wins and losses and, you know, mm. how many games has he died in and how many has he survived and if he wanted to and have it all there. Uh, and then, and then of course, the logical extension of that would be to have that as part of an army builder program so you can just select the people and put it into an army of course the logical conclusion of that would be having some kind of campaign system crusade. that kind of you know, brings all that together yeah well exactly crusade is another great example i think 
between war cry and crusade and stuff dw have been doing some really interesting stuff with campaigns and making them very free-flowing and open uh, and kind of like it's all about playing games rather than paperwork in a way um uh, but also um uh, that's when you can start to connect to other people and, mm. and there's um uh, there's a website called world anvil we use like, it. We use yeah, World Anvil. Yeah. So yeah, well, I've only just started. I've just started doing a few notes for my my dread campaign and some future stuff that I might be doing um, uh, for writing stuff. You know, uh, but you, you can again imagine on a World Anvil type campaign wiki type thing that you're running, which again, rather than having to to sort of like uh, manage it too much, again that that interface becomes seamless between your games. Take a snapshot at the end of the game and use be able to highlight the units and. And, mm. and who took part and stuff, and it all being recorded on this kind of cool wiki database, and you go, that'd be awesome, you know. Also, yeah. potentially hard work, but you know, yeah. well, the, the, the idea is to make it less hard work as, the, <laughs> as you go along. I uh, spend a lot of time on World Anvil, so we've got our we've got a D and D campaign we do every Thursday, right. and um, yeah. I've got a World Anvil. I like I got to the point where I've bought the the unlimited one, so it goes on forever. You know, you can get uh, they just they. They just announced it recently, where you could get it for life. You can get, um, uh, you can get their subscription for life. So I went, I'm all in on this. So I got that, and uh, I spend most of my life now writing story, writing little bits of sort of like, um, like rules of rules of engagement and um, small little things like map stupid things that happened in a blacksmith or that happened uh, in in a shop somewhere and stuff, and like drawing maps and stuff. So you, you know. We, people can see where they're moving around on the map and adding layers onto the map so you can zoom in so that's the, that's the areas that's the cities that's the towns you can zoom into the into the towns themselves and stuff it's just like it takes up so much of your life but it's awesome it's so good so in yes. depth yeah it's so good yeah i'm just like i'm just trying to get i'm kind of just getting my head around it at the moment some of the features and things to 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 record some stuff for this dread campaign and the various interlocking clues and and stuff like that so i can i've got i've got basically reams of handwritten notes and stuff which are kind of cool <laughs> but actually yeah. if i lose them i'm screwed so <laughs> um but yeah i mean and of course the great thing is of course being a games developer and an author is actually that's that's that my my subscription is deductible <laughs> so, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah that's cool i mean I still have to pay for it but yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's business expenses. It's business expenses. It I do is, that. Oh, it absolutely is. I do that all the time myself. <laughs> how to dodge? How to dodge your taxes, ladies and gentlemen? One hundred and one. Uh, <laughs> you do occasionally have to write a book. Well, <laughs> this is why I'm avoiding World Anvil, Matt. Is I'm terrified I'll get as hooked as you are because right. I'm just getting getting right. ready for NaNoWriMo because I'm a man ML as well. And I'm terrified that I'll spend more time world building than actually writing. Yeah. You do spend your <laughs> life literally doing it, man. It's just like... Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing, though, because I think that, and that's how kind of like the geek economy is kind of changing slightly, is that if you did that, and actually there's, there's because of the way world anvil set up <laughs> and you can access stuff, you could run a Patreon that gives access to your world building mm. that other people could then use. So you can, you know, geekery can get monetized in very many different ways these days. Like talking about Kickstarters, but also Patreon and, and, and Twitch streams and all that kind of stuff um, in a in a way that it couldn't done before. And I think that creative economy and that geek economy, so people can kind of, you know, it's the geek economy as well. But for your for, for like, you know, you don't necessarily have to live off 
your your role playing streaming or your Patreon or whatever. But it's not, you know, in some ways, it's almost just justification for sharing it. You know, you want to do world building on world and stuff. So actually, the four guys that follow me, on, you know, back me on Patreon are the reason I do it. Uh-huh. You know, whatever it might be, um, they you know that sometimes they're just the excuse you need as opposed to actually. <laughs> well, I mean, geek, geek is big now. I mean, four years ago, I was asked to write for the BBC uh, an article about will we ever build a Max. Yes, I know, I remember that. One. And that was just fantastic to research. <laughs> and then like Robot did... Jocks. Robot Jocks. Oh, Robot what a jokes. film. What a film. And then like about years or later, I was, I was writing an article, Will We Ever Colonize <laughs> Asteroids based on the expanse? And again, fantastic research. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think uh that's yeah, I mean that that sort of you know, the rise of Geek and Sundry and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That that digital sort of medium that um and and like i say like i said there's so many games i mean it's it's hard to see how sustainable it's hard to see how sustainable some of this is at the moment so um because we we've got into a very accelerated time scale for games and things like that so and i i've had conversations with various people which amount to the same things which is because um, Kickstarter is actually terrible <laughs> in some ways, because it's for me, it's my way of doing impulse buying, but I have to wait 18 mm. months for the thing. You're buying gifts like for yourself way. in the future. You're buying well, gifts for yourself. Absolutely. <laughs> but the great thing is, you kind of get a notification from DPD that somebody's turned out, you go, well, well, this is going to be. It could be any one of six different current things that <laughs> yeah. could be arriving anytime soon. What is your message thing? Because it's like buying, what, isn't it? What is, you just uh, send a yeah, present yeah. to yourself the night before and you don't remember it until you get a, a guy from Amazon turns up in the morning to wake you up. It's true, man, but it's like, <laughs> I, yes. I just I, I just had some stuff rock up uh, some um, uh, what they called ah uh, oh, they used to be called kabuki the- kabuki uh, models but they do lots of like busts and things like that I had a massive box turn up from them uh, and my girlfriend's like what what's that and I'm just like uh, I bought it like two years ago <laughs> it's a gift from two years back it's only just well, turned up now <laughs> well, that's why that's why I think of it really it's like that the the, the uh... The ghosts of full cupboard's future. <laughs> yeah. As far as I can tell. It's like, because I look at it and go, oh, I've just moved. I just had a big clear up recently. Not, you know, obviously never throw anything away, but it's like, no, I've moved stuff around and I've, and I've put this on. It's like, it's great. And it's it's like, yeah. Yeah. In six months' time, it's all going to be. It's like, you've got at least six more games arriving. Yeah. You know? like, yeah. um, and stuff. Terrain as well. Storing terrain's my, my bugbear. Oh. But, um, oh, man. I've got so but much I've got terrain. Some terrain arriving as well. It's like, <laughs> I've got more terrain than that's necessary. I've got cardboard stuff, MDF stuff, plastic. I've got it all, and it, it's this place. It's like I don't need this much terrain. I've just mm-hmm. gone went that looked cool. Like I just backed. I just backed actually another Kickstarter. I just backed a, uh, a Kickstarter <laughs> on terrain. On terrain, it's like, I don't need that terrain. <laughs> I don't need it. It just looks freaking cool. <laughs> there, yes, absolutely. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> um, uh, but and, and for, I think for terrain in particular, you know, like miniatures and stuff, it's not so bad. I think uh, where there's uh, a, a danger for some people because of that delay, because of the, because of the hotness being like dominated by Kickstarters on WarGameGeek and all this kind of stuff, and the way they're kind of skewing the market a bit, and certainly big name Kickstarters mm-hmm. taking lots of the money. Um, and I mean, I try to back small kickstarters as well just little indie rpg zines and all this mm. kind of stuff um because i'm not that you know for the reason we've been talking about you know it's like the big stuff actually isn't necessarily that enticing anymore because i just don't have the space all the time but actually 
they're not creating communities. So no. if it's a one-off game, that's cool. But actually, if it's a, the one that you know um, uh, comes back and people talk about it, is Relic Knights, which was very successful, but of course nobody plays it. You know, it was it was a big Kickstarter, and then it did a second edition and stuff like that to sort stuff out. But again, the delay in stuff mm. actually hitting you means everyone's into something else. Guild Ball come out, something else coming. You know, these stuff. So, um, so they never actually, although they may have quite a lot of backers. Although mm. a lot of the big ones, you look at it and you go, "Oh my God, that made you know half a million dollars," and you go, "Yeah, from fifteen hundred people," which is quite a good sales. But actually, that's not that's not very big number of people to try and build a community around across the yeah. globe sort of thing and certainly when even even smaller companies have to have more a wider fan base than that and then so if you can build on it that's cool uh, and if you can build a community around that but actually if you're if they're only getting something every 18 months you know or actually you don't follow through or your supplement is late or whatever then suddenly it's gone all of that faith and and goodwill disappears and then you're sunk and there's a few companies that, you know, um, all quite on the Martian front and things like, you know, things like that were very successful Kickstarters, but actually behind the scenes, costs rose and other stuff. And, and they end up, rather than it being Kickstarter originally being sort of like a way of offsetting your production costs for retail and things, now retailers don't want to take Kickstarters because anyone who's interested in them has bought yeah. them a massive discount. And, and and that's the thing is like, lot, again, lots of the big ones are like, oh yeah, we'll just throw miniatures at you because it's, it's all the economies of scale, which other people it can't compete with. You know? mm, yeah. Absolutely. And then, I mean, you know, retailers like, I don't want to sell. Yeah. Dreadball's the one that comes to mind. Uh, um, me and a couple of friends used to do, um, at the weekends, we were doing sort of war gaming as like a, at the shows, we'd go to the shows, we'd buy and sell a little bit of eBaying. And we really liked the look of Dreadball. And we bought a bunch of stuff in. The problem is no one was buying it because everybody who wanted to play Red Bull had got into the Kickstarter and they had like five spare teams and the, yeah. the box set and the special edition miniatures and stuff. And I think we ended up, you know, we, we went in for like one of the the shop packs for whatever. It's like 350, yeah. 400 quid. And most of that went out of cost in the end yeah. because no one else wanted it. No, absolutely. You can't, you know, literally can't give it away almost. Because, yeah. and, and, and then the flip side is because of that, you know, people then, uh, there's a similar thing in publishing. You know, people then actually get quite cold feet about jumping on board of stuff because, like, oh, am I going to want to drop 200 quid on this game that nobody's going to play? Yeah. You know, um, if your setup costs are that high, uh, you know, it's like, oh, everyone's gone back to, particularly, I mean, particularly once, you know, like, three or four years ago when GW got themselves sorted out again and mm -hmm. basically hit the scene running with like Necromunda and Adeptus Titanicus and Blood Bowl and, and, and Age okay. of Sigmar was, was getting over its teething problems and 40k 8th hit you know that was you know, the big dogs back in town and everyone's spending money on it and you know it's like oh right you, know, you just released your skirt oh no sorry they just released like commander boom yeah you know it's like well there goes everybody else's money so, and yeah, you know yeah. and, and suddenly and of course that's kind of settled down again now i mean they're still going great guns and things but actually the the the, the recruiting side of it is pulling everything up again hopefully um which mm -hmm. is what wasn't happening before um 
Yeah, but I actually, actually remember that time because I that was one of the first times the the Games Workshop were talking to the press. Oh God, yeah, man, they were they were, they were so bad. But you know, they, they were they went through a period. They didn't even have a Facebook page. They were they, they refused oh, to yeah. talk to anybody. Shut, uh, shut and down then the forums, everything. Yeah, yeah was, well, the four years ago, but literally just started talking to the press. Yeah. And that was very that was a big okay. thing. It was it was a fundamental shift in their approach to publicity and community, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and just bringing out some great product, uh, yeah, and doing the stuff and talking, telling people about it, and actually selling it rather than just expecting people to buy it and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, and I think that suddenly uh, there were probably a few companies and, and projects around then that probably went, oh, <laughs> it's like oh great, oh I'm just planning to do, you know, it's like oh well there goes that, you know, it's like because nobody's going to be looking in this direction. Yeah. I don't think you know, um, but I, I think people can then bear that in mind now i think you know it's not a uh you know dreadball being a, a classic example like, yeah, yeah let's get to dreadball and suddenly it's like well or you could play pop a blood bottle again and they're different games and they've got different appeal and stuff like that well that was guild ball oh guild ball guild, sorry yeah oh, guild ball, they've, they've deliberately wound down now yeah uh, uh, dreadball i don't know i mean dreadball's mantic so yeah right, theory yeah. i think is still going i'm sorry i mixed those two up so yeah. that was me. Well, exactly. my, my obs is freaking kicking off at the minute so i think we're gonna to have to wind this down at the minute um but um a few questions before you go gav because uh, i think some of my friends <laughs> will be re- really uh, really an- annoyed if i <laughs> first up we've got a, we've got a question on uh there's been a few comments on uh on socials but uh charlie uh mcbroom says uh what companies do you feel are doing commu- uh the community well these days um I, I don't know. To be honest, I, I'm just not in a very good position to answer that because I don't really interact with it that in a, in a, in the same kind of way. I'm not. I'm I'm actually not that into the like I say into the community side of things. I'm not playing that many things, so I I'm not exposed to that. I, I'm not on Facebook. I'm on a few. I'm on Twitter, and that's the only kind of um, social media I do. So I'm not exposed. To that. I don't really watch twitch or youtube and stuff like that so i'm i'm one of those weirdos that doesn't really interact with it in much of a way so uh so yeah i don't really know <laughs> okay. I'm not, I'm, there you I'm, go I'm there you go charlie straight to the I mean, point there's things i like and people companies that are doing stuff i like but i don't know if they're engaging with the community well enough you know it's like i, I couldn't make any comp- comparison between gw and wizards of the coast and privateer and, and mantic and stuff because i don't interact with any of them particularly in the same way so uh, my my opinion isn't particularly valid, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which is a, a rare thing for people to admit on the internet. I know. Um, one of Perhaps my <laughs> uh, one of my mates, uh, Leonard. He he used to work for Games Workshop in Manchester, um, but he says, uh, "What's the uh, what's the best way into the black and uh, into Black Library as an, a new author?" Uh, the submissions window, yeah. the, you know, when they run the submissions window, they've got uh, a horror submissions open at the moment, aren't they? Horror, yes, exactly. There's a horror submissions window open at the moment. Uh, if you're not an already published author, basically, if you're looking, um, that and that's the best way. I mean, look at the guidelines, write a really cool story or two, and give it a go. Really, I mean, <clears throat> but I also caveat any any of that stuff, which is like you have to decide. It's like writing for Black Library is a particular thing, and obviously fans want to do that. And that's slightly different from do you want to be a writer? And if you want to be a writer, then you can't just think about writing on one particular thing for one particular company. There are thousands of, uh, you know, 
journals and publishers and things who, uh, who are after short stories of all kinds of different things. So if you want to be a writer, then you have to cast your net wide. If you're a fan and want to try and get a story published with Black Library, then that's the way to go. It, but either way, submissions window, keep an eye out for the submissions window and then, and then submit stories, basically. I had um, what was it? The last submission, um, not uh, not just the horror one, but the one before. I was like, I'm going to do one. It's going to be about the Praetorians and after after the sort of uh, the the defeat at Orcs Drift, you know that sort right. of battle yeah. that battle report thing, and it was going to be about a soldier, and it was going to be, and then I was like, and then I got like two pages in and went, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do this. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, it's just like, easy. Yeah, you know, well, it's, it's just, just, he knows he's right. He, just, he does the difficult stuff. He has, his stuff has to make sense and he has to research it. <laughs> People turn around and go, that's not true. Whereas I go, prove it. You know, yeah, this, this is why I talk about stuff like, will we ever build next? Because then it can go, well, <laughs> Yeah, if, if one day you're proven wrong and they do build a mech, then it's... Been, they then have, the fact is, though, that they have, in Japan... Yeah, the Gundam, the big... Like, exactly, they built that big Gundam. Yeah. And also, about a couple of years ago, there was this uh, giant fight between um, a oh, Japanese yeah. robot and an American robot. <laughs> so, yeah, I was completely proved wrong. Although it was wheeled and not on the leg, so that is my... So I'm still standing by my the, article. The, the Japanese Gundam one, is, is that on, like, a crane? Or does it actually move on it? its own i think it's not dolly or some sort yeah it's not like i don't know what it's intended to long term whether that's still part of it or not yeah so i don't know i mean yeah um my my mate craig says uh do they have a horace heresy authors whatsapp group and if if so who's the most active (laughs) uh there no we do it we we, because we're all of a certain age we just do email Uh, however (laughs) um people may know from Warmer community and things like that. Um, Guy, Aaron, and myself are in a little WhatsApp group, and we also got another group with Phil Kelly in it as well because we did the um, Taylor for, for War, Word Lords Army collecting thing for Warmer community. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, um, we we have. We, there's not so much a, a WhatsApp group kind of chat thing. It's more. Uh, you know, uh, where's this gate on the eternity wall again? <laughs> uh, so, that's very much. There's a lot of geography-related questions flying around as part of the heresy group at the moment. But yeah, when I mean, we all kind of get on, it would be lovely. It'd be lovely to have a WhatsApp or a Slack or whatever it is we're supposed to do. But we're not that organised. Um, and this is a, this is a question for me. Do you do you think they're going to bring out an emperor model, and how do you think they're going to start him? <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't put it past Fordwell not to release anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, they've got to do that diorama, don't they? They've got to do that diorama with him and Horace and Sanguinius dead, don't they? They've got to do a revert, a re sort of vamp of that old school diorama from the back. Mike McVay one. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, are they good? But I don't think they can. You know, uh, the, I mean, the, the interesting, the use, the very useful bit in many ways about the particularly Siege of Terror background, mm-hmm. is that neither of those people, Horus or Emperor, actually gets involved in any fighting except versus each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Sanguinius, obviously. So uh, so you don't need to stat them, really, unless you do a little mini-duel game yeah, yeah. Uh, to actually fight each other. They don't the statting actually... for them will be just be 10 across the board. Well, that's it. it. Yeah, it's like, how do you stat the Emperor? And then you get a model for him, it's like, how do you, how, I don't, you know... Because Horus does have stats, but it's not. he's not a transcended Horus, well, is he? He's no, just... Exactly. I, I remember, like, years ago um in vampire the masquerade um white wolf 
the, the creators of it actually started uh, Cain, the progenitor of the vampires, and it basically was, you're dead. <laughs> Any <laughs> start, you're dead. You're dead. Skill list, a, you're dead. There was, a, there was uh, back in the the old, old, old days of White Dwarf when they had other role-playing stuff and things in there, and I remember there was a review of um, a Middle Earth role-playing supplement, which was for um, uh, sort of for the Valar, or included some of the stats for the Valar from Silmarillion, and uh, and it said, you know, and it said, which is just obviously insane and incredible. And then, who really wants to know that Owly has plus one hundred skiing? <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, okay, and that kind of summed it, that kind of sums it up. He's like, you know, the Emperor has plus one hundred skiing. You need to, that's all you need to know. Is it, is it sort of you talking about that actually made me think? Did Games Workshop do a history range, sort of ancients Games Workshop? Did they do? There was Hammer Historical for a while, yes. Yeah. Uh, for, well, for a while. The, the main uh, proponents of that were the Perry Twins and Jervis Johnson, who kind of set it all up. And they got quite successful, and a guy called Rob Broom ran it for a while. Um, and then and then it felt, well, and then, and then Games Workshop was running into trouble, so it decided to close anything it didn't quite understand. Oh. Um, Mm. Um, uh, which wasn't you know, anything that wasn't directly related to the, their own toy soldier business, um, and Warhammer Historical went with that. So Warhammer Ancient Battles was quite a thing, and it was uh, very successful, really. In fact, again, you know, it literally started with the Perrys and Jervis mailing because it was this little junk, so they'd send out copies of the rulebook from their garage thing. So it had like the Games Workshop stamp on it because it was Warhammer, um, and uh, then there was Warhammer. Uh, there was a Warmaster version. So, uh, which Rick then rewrote into uh, Hail Caesar for Warlord, basically, yeah. Warlord Games now. It, it, Rick never lets a good idea go to waste. Um, <laughs> no. uh, so, um, uh, yeah, but then, yeah, and then but there was various games. Uh, uh, Mark Latham, who was became White Dwarf editor for a while, one of the guys in my role-playing group, he did uh, Trafalgar Game for them as Wild West. Uh, Legends of the Wild West, I think it was called as well, and stuff. Like that. So it's good. they did actually quite a lot. Um, um, and then Rob Broom, I forgot what it's called now because he has a company now, and he basically it is essentially like the equivalent of second edition or third edition Warhammer Ancient Battles, but with like the names filed off. Essentially, and I, I've forgotten what he's, I've forgotten what his company's called now. But um, for people that want to carry on playing and stuff, so um, and he's got a little bit, he's got a business kind of carrying on with that. So yeah. That was a thing. The, when we were when we were pitching ideas for the slot that Inquisitor eventually filled, um, one of them uh, was uh, called Warhammer Forty Seven, <laughs> which was basically an, a, a Weird War Two set of rules set in set in essentially the Forty K mythos. So it was basically, you know, like Soviet corn worshippers and uh, you know <laughs> Nazis of Slanesh or whatever. And, and, again, it sort of it sort of replaced the um, the traditional political leanings with kind of chaos influences and stuff like that. <coughs> um, which was the idea it was like uh, it would actually um, rather than Games Workshop doing all of the kind of the standard stuff. You know, you don't want Games Workshop doesn't need to make another. T34 or Sherman, but actually all the weird, wacky, cool stuff that you'd add on to it, all the weird chaos things and stuff. Um, and then you've got back on Dragon's Ranges. But... We have um, Dust. Do you, have you ever played a game called Dust Tactics or a thing that's uh, called oh, Dust Tactics? Yeah, I loved. I, 
I love Dust Tactics. I I absolutely I got it from when when Fantasy Flight did it back in the day. I've got I got so much of that stuff. I've got like four, I got four armies. I've got a massive mm-hmm. German army, a Marshes army, uh, Allied army, a massive uh, uh, Cthulhu one. Uh, I've got you know shiny. Yeah. You know I love that game. It's just because it was quite simple. It started off it was square based, and I've even got even some of the dice in my in drawer here. But it was like square based, and it wasn't overly complicated. Then they added in some sort of you know, proper war gamey type rules to it when in Dust Warfare. Um, oh yeah, that was Andy Chambers wrote Dust Warfare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um yeah. but I yeah, I thought that was such a good game. The models were amazing as well. Like having like mech Shermans and having sort of like, you know, walkers and things like that. It was such you know, the concept yeah, was yeah. amazing. I loved it. You know, I love it. Yes. I love There's, it. Um Warlord have got Conflict forty four, which again mm. was somebody else and they bought out in the range. Um uh and then um yeah, I don't think anyone's got dust at the moment. They sort of imploded over a deal with Battle, a Kickstarter deal with Battlefront, and they, well, they the, the problems of agreeing stuff in the back room and not actually writing contracts. They they um, they, 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 they do feel well. They 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 disappeared after that Kickstarter. So it was the yeah. uh, the Babylon Kickstarter, I think. Um, and it it, it sort of you know like you said it, they sort of imploded but they're they're back because like in manchester's fanboy 3 they sell a lot of their stuff now uh, i can't remember who's who's dealing with it but they they seem to be there's like a polish company that i get mine called Warfact. i think it's called war factory or something but they're where i get my sort of um dust tactic stuff from uh and so it's not like you know the, the cool fantasy flight sort of boxes you used to get which were white with a picture on them they're like cardboard um, like proper dust, dust nineteen. Sorry, I've just done this. Dust nineteen forty seven. Yeah, nineteen forty seven. That's it. Yeah. So they're yeah, they're, they're research. <laughs> yeah, they're just selling, and you know they've got yeah. like I've got um an avatar of Cthulhu, which is an amazing model. It's basically a, a small Cthulhu type model with wings and stuff, and and some of the Cthulhu stuff's really really good. Um, and that's quite a good angle. And apparently they've got they're going to be bringing in aliens and things like that into it as well. So <laughs> it's it's going again now. Yeah. Yep, yeah, some interesting stuff there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. All right. Um, yes. Cool. Um, right, we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, my deepest apologies for the technical difficulties. Unfortunately, you know, you've got <laughs> the one time you wanted to work, it's <laughs> it decides not to. But um, yeah, um, thank you very much for joining us, Gav. I really appreciate it, man. So interesting. Really, really interesting. Always fun to hang out and chat hobby stuff. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like, I, to be honest, I could probably carry on for ages, but my missus will oh, kick, my, kick my ass. And uh, I'm pretty sure um, the others will get a, a knock on the door until. Oh, my other half went to bed about an hour ago. She uh, just said, just try not to wake me up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sleeping in the spare room tonight already anyway. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, uh, amazing. Like, uh, I, I've got a, a million other things I could probably ask, but we could carry on for hours now. And then. it's just like one of those things like, I want to talk about this, I want to talk about this, I want to talk about this. <laughs> but um, yeah, I much appreciate the time, man. I'll come back uh, in a few weeks, maybe. Yes, yes. You're, you're more than welcome whenever you want to come back on, man. Yeah, just to talk ner- general nerdy stuff by all means yeah, say, yeah, rather, yeah. yeah this, if you want to just talk you just want to talk nerd by all means you're, you're more than welcome anytime um, but yes for tonight um, I've been Matt Geary with me has been Mark Canty seeing you um, I, I was going to say John Joe Cosgrove but he's not with us today <laughs> he's okay. always really yeah, with us today um, Peter, yeah the silent partner uh, Peter Ray Allison stay safe and look out Peter and Gav Thorpe Cheerio. Cheers, guys. Thank you very much. See you later. Bye.